if it's fighting that you want, you may have it. Bridge to all decks. Well, if you're hearing that, then you know what that means. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I feel like in a way we've we've moved into a new kind of episode. I think we're into a, a new age in Star Trek as we move into the Squire of Gothos. We are. And, you know, I was going to make that comment much, much deeper into this podcast, but we are definitely into a, a new phase of Star Trek because uh, we've talked before about how the menagerie sort of represented the end of a of a certain phase of Star Trek in which Roddenberry was uh, Gene Roddenberry was very 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 hands on he was a day-to-day producer and then Gene Kuhn came on it took him a couple episodes to to kind of get up to speed and really make his mark but with Shore Leave the last episode we covered on Enterprise Incidents and now the Squire of Gothos the one two punch of Shore Leave and the Squire of Gothos, the levity, so much levity that we see in these episodes, the the relaxed relationships now that we have, especially between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the way they are 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 so much more humorous with each other. We are really feeling the impact of Gene Kuhn as the day-to-day producer of Star Trek. And during Gene Kuhn's run from the middle of the first season to the middle of the second season, especially with this screenplay that he actually wrote, that is when Star Trek really hit its stride. But even as a producer with The Squire of Gothos, this was not an episode that he wrote, but it was an episode that he rewrote mm-hmm. uh, heavily. And the episode was actually written by the writer of your one of your favorite episodes and an episode that we've already covered here on Enterprise Incidents. Do you know what that is? My guess is it's Balance of Terror. That is correct. Paul Schneider wrote his second screenplay for Star Trek, his first being Balance of Terror. And the episode was the 17th episode to air, which it did on January 12th, 1967. But it was actually the 19th episode to film. It was filmed over seven days between October 28th and November 7th, 1966. Now, Star Trek was allotted six days to produce an episode. So The Squire of Gothos, which was directed by Don McDougal, took seven days to film. That means it went over budget. And like we talked about, Steve, on the last episode of Enterprise Incidents, when we were doing Shore Leave, you know, when they got the full season pickup, which is great news. They also got some bad news that the budget was lowered to $185,000 per episode. I mean, like, think about that. $185,000 per episode to produce a groundbreaking and totally unique science fiction series. The total cost of The Squire of Gothos came to $194,573, which made it over budget by $9,573. Good thing the score was tracked. But it's it's pretty good if they had had the previous budget. It's so because what was that? It was 193. Is that what it was? That's right. 193,500 was so the it's almost budget. on the money for the previous budget. It's just yep. with the new smaller budget that it's a problem. Well, Don, uh, Don McDougal directed this episode. It was the only Star Trek episode that Don McDougal directed, and he had done a lot 
of TV over the years and a lot of film over the years. But on TV, he directed shows like Cowboy G-Men, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, The Roy Rogers Show, Trackdown, Wanted Dead or Alive, Rawhide, Bonanza, Mannix, you name it. But uh, this was his only episode primarily because it did go a day over schedule. Now, I want to ask you a question, Steve. Mm-hmm. We have not actually talked about the uh, cutting to the chase here. Do you like this episode? <laughs> so I, I was thinking about this is there are good things in this episode. There are a lot of good things in this episode that I do like. I hate Trelane. Oh, come on. I hate him. He is someone I find and, and we'll get into my reasoning for it. Um, but it actually gave what I was thinking about is it gave me an idea, not just about Star Trek, but really about myself that that this episode really made me think of, which is, and I think I've said this on the fo- the, the show before, in my writing, in the things that I've done, I've never liked bad guys. I am always wanted characters who have a reason for doing what they're doing, that they believe in the thing they're doing. We might have conflicts with them, and also that the more you learn about them, the less you dislike them. And both from like my film, The Assistants, where you think, which is like Hollywood assistants who have a, they have a caper where they're going to make their own film. When you meet all the people they work for, they seem like bad guys. But then as the more the movie goes on, you start to understand, oh, they're a lot closer to us than we thought. And even having worked on, made two great white shark films, particularly Beyond the Cage of Fear, my second one, is the whole point of it is here's this monster. But when we understand them, we see that they're not a monster. And the thing that I started thinking about with Star Trek is I started thinking about all the episodes we've done so far and how many bad guys have we actually seen. And it is surprisingly few. Like, certainly we could say the Telosians are bad guys. Although in the Menagerie, they're a little bit redeemed. They're right. less, Absolutely less they're redeemed. bad guy-ish. Mm-hmm. Where no man has gone before, yes, Gary Mitchell is our antagonist, but I don't think we can say he's a bad guy. We feel really bad for him. And Kirk at the end says he didn't ask for what happened to him. Is there a bad guy in Corbomite? No. Is we- there a bad guy in, in the Balance of Terror? I mean, yeah, you could say the Raman Commander is a bad guy, but, but this he's is not a bad, a bad guy. guy. He, he's, he's a bad guy that has a lot more in common with Kirk than he doesn't. He's an antagonist. He's mm-hmm. not a bad – a bad guy implies that he's evil. He's not. He is just like – he's just doing his job. In uh, Enemy Within, no. In Naked Time, no. Charlie X, he's certainly an antagonist, certainly scary. But how do we feel about in the end? We feel really, really bad for him. I'm glad you brought up Charlie X. Well, Charlie X is definitely something we're going to talk about as we go. Yes. Is there a bad guy in Miri? No. In what are little girls made of? Well, Roger Corby we is someone we end up feeling bad for. You know, like Dagger the Mind, that's a bad guy. That's one of the very few bad guys we've had so far. In Conscious of the King, Lenore is certainly a bad guy, <laughs> but we also have, she's trying to protect her father. She has a motivation that we understand. And she's just crazy as cuckoo yeah. for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> yeah. Gal- Galileo 7, no bad guy. Mm-hmm. In Court Martial, we don't, yes, Finney is the bad guy, but we don't even see him. For, he's not even in the show for the vast majority of it. And even at the end, I feel bad for Finney. So the question is, Steve, is Trillane a bad guy? Yes. Okay. Now let me ask you a question. You, you seem like you're mixed about the Squire of Gothos now, but how were you about the Squire of Gothos when you were getting into Star Trek as a little kid? I think I thought it was fun. I think I thought it was fun. I, I, but I, I always, well, and this is the thing, I'll just say what my objection to Trelane is, is that if you're going to pick what character trait is going to make Steve mad more than almost any other, it is a sense of entitlement. 
Oh, well, I mean, Trillane is all about that's a sense what of entitlement. And, and, and having, and I'll just, my, uh, maybe I won't put this in the show, but uh, my grandmother, she uh, grew up with money and she walked around with a sense of entitlement. She believed that she needed to be treated a certain way that was special and different from other people because of who she was. And what was so crazy going around San Francisco with her, she was treated that way. Because she demanded that she was treated a certain way, she got treated that way. And it made me, for my entire childhood, so uncomfortable and so upset because she was the kind of person who talked down to waiters. She was the kind of person that was demanding and, you know, expected special things. And I hated that. Okay, but there's a difference here because Trillane, as we discover during a surprise pot twist at the very end, sure. which I think still holds up and is still rewarding after all these years, is that we find out that Trelane is just a spoiled little brat. And he, yes, he is a he's, spoiled brat. He is told to come went back in and go to his room by his parents. And, and there is so much about the payoff that works. And there's a reason why it works. And there is a reason why this payoff is so quintessential Gene Kuhn, again, he didn't write the episode, but he did rewrite it. So his impact is definitely there. And I feel like this episode in particular is the first truly Gene Kuhn episode where we're going to see so many of the qualities that Gene Kuhn brought to the table with the stories reveal themselves over the next uh, like 30 episodes. But when I was growing up, I absolutely thought The Squire of Gothos was a ton of fun. And after all these years, The Squire of Gothos is still one of my very favorite hmm. Star Trek episodes. And the reason for that is because of William Campbell's performance. That's one. The other is because of the chemistry the chemistry between the two Williams, William Campbell <laughs> and William Shatner. Now, when I was a kid, I, I just thought it was a ton of fun. And I have this vivid memory of when I was watching TV in 1981. So by this point, Star Trek was still on at seven o'clock every night on WPHL Channel 17 in Philadelphia. Now, at this point, it was early 1981. So we had home box office, which is called HBO now, right. but it was literally a box on your back of your TV mm -hmm. that you flipped to switch from A to B, and then you get to watch these movies. So by this point, Star Trek The Motion Picture was on, was on HBO. So I remember one time I was in my basement, and we didn't have the VCR yet, so I was watching Star Trek The Motion Picture. It started at 6.30. And then the original series, you know, the Star Trek show started at seven o'clock. Mm. So I kept flipping back and forth between Star Trek, the motion picture and the Squire of Gothos. Could the tone, could the pacing of the Squire of Gothos and Star Trek, the motion picture be any more different? <laughs> you know, could Star Trek, the motion picture, which is a largely humorless film yeah. and the Squire of Gothos, which is loaded with humor and levity, be any more different? And I remember at one point I was watching Star Trek, the motion picture, and I'd seen the Squire of Gothos many, many, many times. But at one point I was watching uh, the motion picture and they had already left space dock and they were on their way to V'ger. And I flipped back and it was at the point in the Squire of Gothos where McCoy and DeSalle and Jaeger were in 
uh, Trelane's drawing room. And it was the moment when Trelane says, uh, uh, I suppose you want them back now. And he releases them. He releases Kirk mm-hmm. and Sulu from being frozen. And then I switch it back to Star Trek, the motion picture. It was like, you know, but that's as vivid memory I have. And, and, and the thing is, is that do I think now at, at this stage of my life, do I think that the Squire of Gothos is one of the best Star Trek episodes? No, I don't. Do I think that it's in the top 10 of, of all the Star Treks? No. Do I think that it's in the top 10 of, of just the original series? No. But this is an episode on streaming when I feel like I'm just in the mood to watch Star Trek. Squire Gothos is an episode that I frequently watch over and over again because of the mix of humor, again, because of the chemistry between Shatner and Campbell, and also because I have grown to appreciate what this episode is doing in a very subtle but very, very effective way. And you know, we are we are really gonna gonna get into that. But uh, Paul Schneider wrote his story outline. First story outline was written on August 11th, 1966. He completed his second draft teleplay on October 18th. And then Gene Kuhn did a script polish, a final draft that was dated October 26th. And then he did page revisions on October 28th, the 31st, and November 1st while while the show was was actually being filmed. And Schneider originally wrote this as an anti-war statement after seeing children playing war. So so there is a, an element to that, but I think Gene Kuhn pumped up the humor to such an extent that the allegories and the messages of the Squire of Gothos have been uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say buried, but they're not there unless you're looking for them. And of course, being so detailed as we are in Enterprise Incidents, I definitely was looking for it. And and I just, it was such a joy to rewatch The Squire of Gothos, knowing that we were going to get into a deep dive conversation about it. And I'm shocked, shocked and stunned that this is not as highly regarded for you as it is for me. <laughs> you, you know, one of the things I think that would be interesting to, to talk about at some point is that we've talked about Star Trek's incredible range and how many different tones it can cover. Well, I haven't really put a group together of the funny Star Trek episodes, you know, the one. And what's so interesting is that in almost all of the episodes, it, we're in a life and death struggle. And in some of the episodes, we take that really, really seriously. And some of the episodes we don't, you know, and that's a fascinating thing that you can do in both cases. We're going to die. But in one of them, it's fun. And in one of them, it's deadly serious. But you know what? It's funny you mentioned that. You're right, because there are funny episodes like this, like Surely to an extent, mm-hmm. obviously Trouble Tribbles and I might. But then there are episodes where there's humor and then there's not like there's a shift in tones within the episode. Of course, the episode I'm talking about uh, is the naked time sure. where there is humor, there is levity. But then, you know, when the you know what really hits the fan, they take it seriously. Well, there's also episodes that are serious throughout and have f- hilarious moments. The biggest one being City on the Edge of the Forever is City on the Edge of Forever is the u- future of the universe is at stake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Kirk and Spock are really funny together. 
That's true. That's you know? true. Yeah. And yeah. so again, it's this ability to play uh, with tone. Would you like to know some of the things that are going on in the world when this was being shot? I cannot wait to hear. So on October 29th, uh, as you said, this is shot uh, between October 28th and I think November 7th. And on October 29th, the National Organization for Women was incorporated. On October 30th, this one is very sad and scary, is Sherry, Sherry Jo Bates, an 18-year-old freshman at Riverside Community College, was brutally murdered. Mm. And mm. this was the first publicly acknowledged murder of the Zodiac Killer. Oh, whoa. Um, and this one's still crazy. One of the craziest things to have ever happened in the history of the United States on October 31st, on Halloween... John F. Kennedy's brain disappeared. Wild. I yeah. never knew that his brain disappeared. Yep. I thought, how do you lose John was, F. Kennedy's brain? It was in the National Archives. And, and of course, this is an important piece of evidence and arguably the most uh, picked over murder in the history of the United States. And it disappeared. And what uh, later came out probably is one guy testified that, in fact, it was Robert Kennedy who took the brain out of uh, the National Archives because he didn't want it ever going on display in the Smithsonian. You know, hearing that makes me think of, of course, Spock's brain. Brain, brain, what is brain? <laughs> what is brain? <laughs> well, like if, if, you, if you're mixed on the Squire Gothos, there are going to be some doozies when we uh, get to the third season. Well, <laughs> one of the things I thought about, this is off the topic, but as I thought about, I wonder what's going to happen when we get, get to the last great Star Trek episode. Like, and I, and I have a feeling about what we might say that is, but that's going to be an interesting moment where it's like, okay, it's all downhill. There's some, there's some interesting episodes to come, but we've passed greatness. Okay. We are, we are going off uh, on a tangent here, but I do have to say, and, and I think that this is, this, this will actually help us in our, in our journey throughout the original series, Steve, is that I actually do have a very, very high regard for the third season. And among my, my fellow Trekker friends who are, are, are very down on the third season. I mean, I feel like if, if the third season of, uh, of Star Trek was actually the first season, and you didn't have these actual first two seasons to compare them to. The first season, actually the third season of Star Trek would be highly regarded. But because you actually have a noticeable downturn in quality from seasons one and two to season three, then, you know, that's where all that comes in. But but my, uh, I'm not going to say which episode this is, but that last great Star Trek episode for me comes very, very, very close to the end. Mm. So we're in good hands on Enterprise Incident. Well, that's good to know. This is one I love, by the way, on November 1st. In Lafayette, California, which I lived there for a couple of years, a gentleman named Candido Jacuzzi filed a patent. Do you want to know what his patent was for? You got to guess. Uh, uh, 66 uh, patent. No, tell me. Listen to the name again. Candido Jacuzzi. Uh the jacuzzi. The jacuzzi. It was for a world, a large hydrotherapy tub. Wow. <laughs> I never knew that that was named I after guess the inventor. Somebody's got to invent that thing, huh? Um, on All Saints, this is All Saints Day, and there was a, a National Football League expansion team that was created on All Saints Day in 1966. You got to guess on what that is? Uh, no. no All Saints Day. All Saints Day. Talk to me. The New Orleans Saints. Oh, <laughs> it really is like right in your face there, isn't it? <laughs> it's like a jacuzzi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes those are the hardest things to see. Um, and on November 4th, there was a terrible flash flood on the Arno River in Florence. that killed 149 
people on the 6th of November, the Lunar Orbiter 2, we talked a lot about Lunar Orbiter 1, launched from Cape Kennedy, and it was going off to have two orbits around the moon, one a high orbit at 122 miles, and then a low orbit at 30 miles above the surface of the moon. Of course, all of this is preparing for the eventual moon landing in 1969. Wow, I love the space shots of the 60s. Yeah. Well, what's what's remarkable to me that I really didn't get a sense until doing the show is this is every week we're hearing NASA news. It's constant. I mean, what, what is that? Like, just try to put yourself in that position. And for everyone listening to Enterprise Incidents who, who had watched Star Trek when it was actually on NBC between 66 and 69, you know, we would love to hear your thoughts, what it was like for you to watch Star Trek in its original run while we were leading up to the landing of a man on the moon. Like, like, let us know, go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know what it was like for you, what your memories are of watching Star Trek and watching us reach for the stars for real. Absolutely. I would love, that's one of the, one of the interesting things on that Facebook page is how many people watched the original series in primetime and are now listening 55 years later to our podcast. And to everyone who has been listening to our podcast, uh, uh, we are so grateful for your support. We are so grateful for the comments we've been getting on our Facebook page. So grateful for the reviews we've been getting on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we want to do right by you. We hope that we are. And I feel like so far, so good. Would you like to... Uh Go to the planet Gothos and meet Trelane. I can't wait. <laughs> so we're in the teaser. And what the first thing we hear is that we're going through this area of space that has zero space density. And we refer to it as a space desert. Um, and one thing I, I think is interesting is McCoy, you know, talks about all these sort of romantic notions of the desert of palm trees and dunes and oasis. And Mr. Spock has quite a reaction to that. Well, well what I love about this opening teaser is that. Everyone is on the bridge is very relaxed. Mm -hmm. There's uh, Spock and McCoy and Kirk. They're, they're just chill. They're just relaxed. You know, McCoy is reminiscing about a star desert, like an oasis and until Spock, you know, debunks, you know, kind of brings him down. But by the way, Spock's definition of what a desert is, is not actually correct. But, that's okay. <laughs> but, but what I love about it is, you know, here, they just got, they just got done with their time on shore leave. They just had a grand time on that mm, planet once mm -hmm. they once they realized how the the whole planet of the the Shirley planet works. So they obviously had a great time. They're tanned, they're rested, they're ready for the next adventure, and 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 that is showing in just how relaxed the the camaraderie and the nature is between them from the beginning. By the way, I love that they're all drinking coffee out of their little blue coffee cups. And I'll tell you the thing that it made me think about in terms of the desert is that this is in a weird way. This is like. A, st a story from Scheherazade. This is like the going to find the genie in the bottle in the middle of the desert. There's the oasis and we're going to experience some magical thing. What a great allegory. What a great comparison. That's what this is. They're about to find the genie in the bottle. And what do they say about the genie? Can't put him back into that bottle. That's a great, yes, absolutely right. We're heading off to whatever destination that is. And then Spock sees something unusual. It's, it is a planet that they are intrigued by, but they don't have time to investigate. Right. So they're just going to make note of it and uh, just, they're just going to do a, a flyby, literally, and, uh, and keep moving on until something S happens. Sulu stands up, looks dizzy, and then boing. Sulu, 
<laughs> I love that sound. <laughs> that's the first time we're hearing the sound, by the way. That, <laughs> that is definitely one that's going to get reused a lot. And Sulu is gone. And then Kirk runs to the helm and try, and and he suddenly gets dizzy. And then Kirk is gone. And too. then the, the urgency, uh, you know, when DeSalle says that Mr. Spock, they're gone. And Spock stands up. Emergency, full reverse power. Like, that's a teaser. That's well, a Star Trek teaser. Well, And that's the first time we've heard that Leonard Nimoy voice. The yelling sort of command voice—that's the first time we've heard it in a lot of in episodes. a while. Because yeah. he, because by this point, you know, this is the other thing about now how we're we're up to the nineteenth episode that they're filming is that Leonard Nimoy has clearly figured out how to yeah. play Spock, and he he doesn't scream. But you know, you just lost your helmsman, you just lost your captain. They literally just disappeared. Yeah. So yeah, he the, the emotion is definitely starting. Emer- I love that emergency full reverse power. And that's the end of the teaser. We go into act one. It's four hours later. We've searched again from stem to stern. If they're not down on that planet, they're nowhere. But there are no signs of life on the planet. And DeSalle, who is a new character who we've never met before, he wants to head down to the planet to look for Kirk and Sulu. So DeSalle is played by actor Michael Barrier, who, you know, actually made his mark in three episodes of the original series. In addition to the Squire Gothos, he was also in This Side of Paradise, and he was also in Temporary Command of the Enterprise in the very first episode shot for season two, which is Cat's Ball. And then he was also in episodes of Gunsmoke and My Favorite Martian and Bonanza. And after 1969, he doesn't have any other credits. And I was reading online, I was trying to find information about Michael Michael Barrier, and he uh, was like, last I saw, a, a substitute teacher. Um, um, but he, he definitely left the business. Well, I mean, for those of you who didn't know this, this is a terrible business. And the vast majority of actors, even ones that had a couple of good gigs on a couple of shows, they're going to leave the business. Yeah, yeah. And what did you think, though, of Michael Barrier's performance of The Cell, either in this episode or This Side of Paradise or in uh, in Cat's Ball? I think he is okay. Yeah, he's okay. Well, And and this is actually a question I was going to ask you. Why do we have the Sal and Jaeger? Why not use, like, why, why are they necessary? Like, right. why didn't we have Scotty? Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, Scotty did request to beam down, but Spock shut him down and said, no, another URI could be, could be Was it a here. money thing? Like, we only wanted to pay Scotty for one day or? Well, Scotty, uh, apparently, well, well, I'll get to this later okay. on, but he actually had two roles in this episode. So uh, I'll get to all that later in the episode. But, you know, there is something to be said about about opening up the crew of the Enterprise so we see more than just the the main characters. Of course, we're not seeing Chekhov yet, not till season two. But I, I thought Michael Barrier was fine. You know, uh, Jaeger, the character of Jaeger, it didn't really do much for me. And this was the only episode that guy did. But uh, but he was solid enough. He's fine. Yeah, he yeah. was fine. Um, and not only does the cell want to go down, but so does McCoy. And Spock says, The decision will be mine, Doctor. I have the responsibility for your safety. And that is something that is uh, resonating to especially McCoy after after the Galileo 7. Well, and again, this is like nobody thought about continuity at the time. But for me, Spock as a leader in this episode is miles beyond Spock's a leader. But th- this is the first thing he says. I'm worried about your safety. Right. Never right. said anything like that in the Galileo 7. And there's 7. something about the way that Spock says uh, the – the decision will be mine. I'm responsible for your safety where he almost wants to reassure McCoy, especially yep. McCoy that I got you. 
I really do have you. I mean, I, I know where I went wrong last time and I learned from that. There is definitely an assurance mm-hmm. in Spock's voice this time around. Well, and even in the next moment, because he asks Jaeger, what's it like on the surface? And Jaeger says, basically, you're going to die if you go <laughs> yeah. down there. And, and Spock, that's his reasoning. He's protecting his crew. And up on the screen pops the words, greetings and felicitations. And right there, boom, the tone of this episode does a, does a subtle shift into something more humorous because clearly this is announcing that we're going to have some fun with this episode. Yep. We're going to lean into it more than we did in, in probably any, any other episode, say for Shirley, which was also a lot of fun. And Spock tries to make contact as you know, a Federation <laughs> ship is going to do. And the response he gets is hip, hip, hurrah. And, tally-ho. And tally-ho. <laughs> um, and again, I think this Spock is totally different from the Galileo 7 because someone asks, is this some kind of a joke, sir? And he says, I'll entertain any theories, Mr. DeSalle, any at all. He knows this is not logical. Therefore, I'm not, my logic is not going to help us figure this out. It's such a, a landmark shift where he learned from his mistakes, where he he knows that, you know, where in Galileo 7, he was like, you know, he was being so on top of everything and everything had to be his decision. Now he's much more collaborative because mm-hmm. he realizes, he realized after that entire experience, his first command, and now he is in command looking for Kirk and Sulu mm-hmm. that he he has to engage the rest of his crew. You know, what's interesting it just occurred to me, as you said, looking for Kirk and Sulu, it's reversed because in Galileo seven, Kirk was looking for him. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. and now he is looking for Kirk. The tables have turned. Mm-hmm. It is a role reversal. And we've at least proven that there's some life down there. So we're going to beam down. And as you say, Scotty wants to beam down and Scott Spock says, no, we got to stay on the bridge. And he's sending McCoy, DeSalle, and Jaeger, and they're going to have some life support this time. Okay, now here's the interesting thing about the life support. So in early versions of the Squire of Gothos, McCoy and DeSalle and Jaeger beamed down and clearly because they needed some kind of protection against the atmosphere. So in the earlier versions, can you guess what they were supposed to beam down in? Well, I, I, maybe that someone wanted to take a shower and so they got some shower curtains. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They were going to have them beam down in those ridiculous red environmental suits that, uh, Spock and Joey Tormolin wore in the beginning <laughs> of the naked time. And when Bob Justman, Robert H. Justman, associate producer, got wind of this, he pleaded not to go with those laughable outfits and he won the argument. Well, in these little gas mask things, they're much, much, much better. Uh, much more practical. Yeah. And we and we also hear as they beam down that they're going to use something called a laser beacon, which I think is something we, again, we never see again. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and we end up in a forest. And, and it this is so much more noticeable in HD, but it's like, yeah, there's now a green wall in the background. They had a, another set that they would use just for the planets. And uh, this was not obviously shot on location. They they had to pick and choose where they were going to do that. But uh, clearly, uh, immediately, they realized just by looking around, and then Jaeger takes off his mask and he's, uh, the atmosphere is fine. We can breathe. And, and Jaeger and McCoy do the same. And they split up and they look around and DeSalle looks up and we hear a big music sting because he has seen something and he calls the others and there is the castle entrance the castle entrance 
So tell me about this music cue. Is this a new music cue or is this one we've used before? Uh, the music cue for that uh, came from the Naked Time oh. when so yeah. So the music cue when when they see the door to the castle. I know where it's Sulu. It's Sulu from the Naked That's Time. Where it's from. Right. So when Sulu was acting like D'Artagnan and uh, and he's uh, uh, you know yeah. waving the sword in the Naked Time. That's where that music cue comes from. All of the music in this episode came from other episodes, but it just shows you how how fitting like that that's such a lucky one because yeah. it so works perfectly for this moment in the movie in the show that that's a really lucky one and they move forward cautiously one thing i noticed by this totally small i wonder why there's dirt on the steps there's there's soil piled up the first two and a half steps and the only reason i can think that it's there is there's something wrong with those steps like they got them out of castle step storage which you do because this set this was totally a set they just rented you oh, know? for sure. For and sure. so like, maybe there was something on the bottom two steps. They're like, oh, I don't want to repaint that. Let's just cover it with some dirt. We'll be oh, fine. Wow. <laughs> That's my guess. I have no way of knowing. And they go inside and we walk into Trelane's drawing room. Yes. Trelane's drawing room was designed by Matt Jeffries, uh, who was the, the art director and the set director for the original series. Uh, and he, of course, designed the, uh, the Enterprise. So this was a round set. And this set, because of just the look of it and all the props and everything, this was actually the set from the first season that Matt Jeffries was the most proud of. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, that's just, that's nuts You seem disappointed by that. <laughs> he designed the Enterprise. Yeah, right. It, it, he's... Look, look at the detail. Look at the detail sure. of Trelane's drawing room. This actually looks like a convincing room out of out of the past. Uh, I think they did a great job dressing that room and designing Trelane's drawing room. It does not it doesn't look like uh it's just some sort of thrown together I, I, set. I you know what it is? I, I, I think so too, but I have worked on sets like that and I've even designed sets. I haven't designed them, but I've I've gone to the prop houses and picked out all this like, oh, we could use that and let's get that table and we'll get that banner and we'll, and, you know, and you bring all your props over and then you go, well, let's put that over there and put that. I've done that process. I've never, ever been in the process of designing the future. And that's where I just like, Matt Jeffries is a genius. He absolutely. And I don't think this is, this is like, you know, having done plays and done movies. It's like, I've done that lots of times. Matt Jeffries, his contributions cannot be overstated as even beyond the original series when it came to designing the re- fitted version of the Enterprise for the movies, which, I mean, you know, you got to agree that the the Enterprise from the motion picture and Rathacon, that that Enterprise is the single greatest and best looking starship in the history of Star Trek. I, I, I'm not going to argue with you, Scott. <laughs> I absolutely wouldn't argue with. And one of the things as we walk into this interesting space is in an alcove is a a mannequin or a, a stuffed animal of uh, something that's really familiar to me. Something that's very familiar to everyone who've been watching Star Trek, especially since day one, and something that is obviously very, very familiar to our Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, and that is the salt monster, the salt vampire from the man trap. So as we will soon come to discover, Trelane, he designed his drawing room because he was looking basically through a telescope at Earth. But because Earth was so far away, he was looking at the Earth of the past. But because of a couple of the props that we see in his drawing room, he wasn't just looking at the Earth. 
He was looking at the Enterprise and looking into the history of the Enterprise and history of some of the crew. And in the mind of Dr. McCoy, because it had such an impact on him, it was so devastating to him to have to shoot the salt vampire after he thought it was his former flame, Nancy Crater, that that image stuck out in Trelane's mind and he put that in his drawing room. Also in the drawing room. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hang on. Also in the drawing room is the bird-like creature that we saw in one of the cages in the cage. And after Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and even Scotty had watched the uh, the voyage of the Enterprise to Talos Four. Maybe there was something about that image of this bird in one of the other cages that Trelane pulled that image and put it in his drawing room as well. Okay. I think that is a fascinating explanation. I understand why Hugh said that. I 100% don't agree with it. <laughs> and I'll, so, so two things. First of all, I think the real reason those things are there is that we had those props and they were cheap and we could use them. And that's why they're there. Hmm. I, I don't think there's any evidence throughout this whole episode that Trelane can read minds. Well, well, okay. Uh, I think that there's there's no there's no actual evidence. The evidence it, the ev- the evidence that Trelane can read minds is the fact that these images were also in his dressing room, uh, in his drawing room, and out of place with everything else that was in his drawing room. So, and yeah, technically, technically, of course, Steve, I agree with you completely that they have these props in the closet. Like, okay, let's well, just put it, it well, in, uh, put it in Trillian's drawing room and, you know, well, I get that. It, well, and I would say that there's evidence that he can't read minds because he really doesn't understand. If he could read minds, he would be able to predict more what Kirk was doing, which he can't. Here's the other thing. The other thing, by the way, about the bird creature, that bird creature does not appear in the menagerie. And so Kirk never saw that bird creature. It does appear in the cage. Right. But that wouldn't be in Kirk's memory. But maybe it would have been in Spock's memory. Maybe Spock would have would have seen it or maybe number one would have told Spock about what was going on or maybe the captain, uh, Captain Pike would have told him. There, there, it, it is absolutely- But, here, but I, can I, I, I give listen. you my explanation? Okay, go ahead. My explanation- Trelane's line at the end is, I haven't finished playing with my predators yet. There's nothing to say that these are his first predators. I think, and by the way, this salt creature, because I actually just played it, I'm playing it right now on my on my iPad to like look at it again. It does not look exactly like Nancy. It looks a little bit different. And I think that he picked up salt creatures from that planet. And he was, those were creatures he played with and this bird creature. Those are creatures he played with before grabbing the humans. So your theory is that the Enterprise crew is not the first species Correct. outside of Gothos that Trelane has toyed with in his lair. Yes. Okay. Now, both of us are potentially correct. Both of us are potentially correct. Because even so, uh, obviously, like what this has been the joy, uh, a great joy of Enterprise incidents is looking at these episodes through the uh, the idea that everything that has come before has affected what we are watching now. You know, reframing the original series through those eyes gives the original series a deeper perspective, especially when it comes to to the motivations of our heroes and our characters. But also, I actually really like your idea that, well, 
okay, so Trelane has played with other species before. So, so it's possible that Trelane has, uh, you know, engaged and, and tortured, so to speak, you know, psychologically, uh, and, and, and played the most dangerous game with the salt vampire or the bird-like creature, or it is literally, he just pulled something out of the memory of, of, select members of the enterprise crew but either way there are there's more to Trelane's powers than we see and we hear about what's so funny about this and you know i, I the people that are listening right now i'm assuming that you're into the, we have now spent more time on essentially a piece of set dressing <laughs> <laughs> than anyone in the history of of star trek podcasts i believe yeah i, I would definitely uh, <laughs> agree with that assessment <laughs> uh, but we walk in and of course the first important thing that we see is sulu and kirk bathed in green light frozen ish and i gotta say shatner's pretty good at staying still George Takei is not. Yeah, yeah. If you look really close, you can see that he's shaking. It's got to be tough, though. It okay, is, don't move. Having had to do it several times, like acting in plays, it is tough. And what makes it particularly tough is thinking about it. Is if you're thinking about, okay, I got to be really still. Suddenly, it's hard to be still. If you We're still all the time. But when you think about it, it gets real tough. Well, the original plan was to have marble-like mannequins mm. of William Shatner and George Decay made up so that they could be they could stand there frozen. And you know, of course, uh, Robert H. Justman is looking at the budget and going like, oh my God, that's going to cost too much money. But uh, what finally happened was Gene Roddenberry said, no, 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 don't worry about that. Just have William Shatner and George Takei stand still and we'll shine them with a, a yellowish, greenish light to make it look like they are marble like mannequins. By the way, pro tip to you actors out there, if you ever have to do this, the key is don't get frozen in an awkward position. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't be bent over. Because by the way, they had to do this for a long time. There was lighting set up. They had to do multiple takes. They like get comfy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make sure you take a pose <laughs> that, you, that can hold. you can actually hold. But just at that moment, when, when McCoy examines that they are like waxworks figures, suddenly the, the door to the castle slams shut and you hear playful playing on a harpsichord and there's this guy who looks just like liberace <laughs> very liberace very yes. very much like the liberace and i gotta tell you for for many many years when i was a kid you know before i got into like you know the actors names and so on i actually thought it was liberace because they look so so similar i mean the hairstyle the smile the uh, wardrobe uh it, it is so so totally. liberace but this is where we meet Trelane. I must say, they make a perfectly exquisite display pair. But I suppose you want them back now. Oh, bong! <laughs> and he frees them. I love Kirk, Kirk adjusts to stuff real quick. Like I was on the bridge, now I'm suddenly completely different. I love that he just he kind of leaps over vaults over the balcony. <laughs> you know, he's just like, all right, catch me up, you know. <laughs> well, catch me up. Uh, we're gonna catch you up about William Campbell as oh, Trelane. So as you all know, not only did he play Trelane in the first season of Star Trek, he also played the Klingon Captain Koth in To Trouble with Tribbles in season two, and he reprised his role as 
Jess Coloth in the Deep Space Nine episode Blood Oath with John Colicos and Michael Anzara, who played Kor and Kang in the original series episodes Errand of Mercy and Day of the Dove. William Campbell was a very, very popular and very in-demand actor on film in 1954's The High and the Mighty with John Wayne, and he was in the 1956 movie Love Me Tender, where he was the first actor to sing with Elvis Presley in a movie. He was also in 1971's Pretty Maze All in a Row, which was written and produced by Star Trek's creator, Gene Roddenberry. On TV, he was also on Cannonball, where he was on 46 episodes of that. He also did Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, The Streets of San Francisco, and in 1974, William Campbell was the best man at the wedding of James Dewin to Wendy Dewin. Oh. Now, Trelane, okay, before we get into whether or not I think it's clear who loves Troy <laughs> more between the two of us, but William Campbell was not the first choice to play oh. Trelane. Uh, the director, Don McDougall, and casting director, Joe D'Agosta, had another actor in mind to play Troy. Now, I'll give you a hint who it was. He was in one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made that came out in 1968. Well, that's got to be 2001. Uh, Oh, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Okay. Okay. So, oh, did they want um, Maurice Evans? They wanted Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. You're getting close. Actually, Roddy McDowell's great casting. Yeah, he would have been great. He would have been great. Now, I thought William Campbell... Was was great, just like you were pointing out earlier in this uh, in this episode, Steve. How we've never actually seen a true bad guy, and I mean, Train qualifies as a very unusual bad guy, but he is a you know he's a baddie. I mean, he definitely is. Yeah. But we've also never seen anyone like Trelane up to this point. Someone so over the top. I thought William Campbell's performance as Trelane was just terrific. He's clearly having fun playing Trelane. He's clearly having a great time working with the other the other Star Trek actors. And when you are watching a film or a TV show, you're watching an actor have fun. That that fun and that energy and that levity is irresistible. I was going to use the word infectious, but I'm not hip on that word these days. <laughs> <laughs> but I just felt like like William Campbell just was so. He leaned into it. He was so committed to this performance and and his performance and and the the dynamic that he has, especially with Shatner, and the chemistry again there. It is so, so much fun to watch. And as, as a side note, a little little thing about William Campbell. Okay, so as you know, if there's one thing I love as much as Star Trek, it's the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So a little short story here. In 1969, a DJ from Detroit, made the announcement that Paul McCartney was dead. Paul is dead. And the clues could be found in some of the songs, some of the album covers. And the theory that came out of that, the rumor was that Paul McCartney had died in a car crash in 1966, hence the words, he blew his mind out in a car. And so, but the Beatles were at the top of their popularity. So what do we do? Well, let's replace them. Let's find someone. And they found an actor. They, they, that actor had plastic surgery. 
and that actor took the place of Paul McCartney. The name of the actor that they used, this is all rumor, because obviously Paul is not dead. Just he had his birthday. Just had his 79th birthday. Um, the name of the Same actor- Same birthday as my mom, by the way. Oh, well, happy birthday, my Paul. My mom is one year older, because she Susie, just turned 80. Right? Yep. Excellent. Oh, that's a good birthday to have. Also the same birthday as Roger Ebert. Oh. So that's very cool. Same age, uh, 79 as Paul McCartney. Um, or he would have been if he was with us. But the actor's name, allegedly, that they used to replace Paul McCartney was William Campbell. Hmm. Now, what I don't know, and I have not been able to find, and I looked, is is the William Campbell that allegedly took the place of Paul McCartney, the same William Campbell that we see having a blast toying around with the crew of the Enterprise in Star Trek, the Squire of Gothos. That I don't know, but the two names are similar. And, you know, if you squint and kind of imagine the Beatle haircut and a little bit of plastic surgery, William Campbell could pass for Paul McCartney. What's so funny, again, it's like, you know, this is Enterprise incidents. It's speculation upon speculation of connections between speculations that we're speculating about. And that is so fun to speculate and go off on these tangents that's um, what we're all about <laughs> uh one other thing and and we'll point i'll point this out a few more times but to me there is an absolute direct connection between trelane and q oh absolutely the person and, and, and in particular i would say to the early q like the way q is portrayed in the first season or two of, of next generation that's very much like Trelane. i remember i gotta tell you i remember when i was watching encounter at far sure, absolutely for the first time I, 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 and my, my Star Trek friends were immediately like, is Trelane a Q? Is Trelane a member of the, of the Q? Like, is he, is he one of them? And that has been part of the conversation now all these years since 1987. And the author, writer, Peter David actually wrote, uh, you know, a Star Trek book called Q squared, which, uh, you know, uh, has Trelane and Q meeting for the first time. Oh, that's funny. And, and, uh, I love Peter David, by the way. He's a really yeah, good writer. Yeah. He's a real, real, really good writer. He wrote a lot of good Spider-Man, uh, uh comics. And, uh, I just, I just think that, um, uh, clearly, well, when you look at what happens at the end of the Squire of Gothos, and you look at what happens at the beginning of Encounter at Farpoint, there's mm. trials going on. Oh yeah, you know between Trelane and Kirk, and then Q and you know and Picard, Picard and yeah. his crew. So there is definitely a correlation. There is definitely a connection. Well, and similarly, is is what you said is that obviously John Delancey is having a ball playing Q, and the same is true with Michael Campbell. You can't play this part unless you jump in with both feet because it is so out there. The language is this sort of archaic language. He's super excited to see everyone here. You must excuse my whimsical way of fetching you here. But when I saw you passing by, I simply could not resist. Here's the thing. Okay. That line, there's something chilling about that line because Troy just didn't notice that the Enterprise was passing by. Trelane was waiting, waiting for something to pass by. Again, this is a star desert. Yeah. Not a lot going on. If there is life out there, uh, there's not, there's nothing to see here, right. <laughs> so to speak. So he was looking and looking, and then he saw the Enterprise passing by, and then he's like, gotcha. And, and I love that Kirk's just having none of it. You know, he's just like, Let's move it along. Like, yeah, what's yeah, going yeah, on here? Yeah, what are and, we doing here? And he introduces himself as General Trelane, retired. 
Um, which I think is an interesting choice because we know that this is actually a little kid that he's choosing not to be a general, but actually someone that was a general and is now retired. I can't tell you how delighted I am to have visitors from the very planet that I've made my hobby. Yes, but according to my observations, I didn't think you capable of such voyages. And this is where we clue into one of the big mistakes that he's made. Okay, let's see. Which is that we're about 900 light years from Earth. And if he was looking through a telescope that was powerful enough somehow to see the Earth, he would have been observing Earth 900 years ago. Okay, so, but the Earth of 900 years ago, and this is something that's been picked up on because from other people who nitpick and really get into this stuff, that the uh, decor of Trillian's drawing room and his wardrobe, uh, they, 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 they go much, much later. Yeah, none of that makes, it doesn't so make the, any sense. So the timing doesn't really make any no. sense. But and, and that's, by the way, I think that's sloppy screenwriting yeah. and sloppy set design is that to, to have this 900 years thing and have Napoleon references and a harpsichord, which are clearly written in the script. Well, you just didn't do any math. Right, exactly. Like, they did not do the math at all. No question about it. You know, the thing about, about watching Squire of Gothos over the years, and especially in more recent years, and, and watching these episodes, which like what other TV show other than maybe The Twilight Zone, like stands up and holds up under so much scrutiny, I mean, other than the math problem. So like Squire Gothos is a great example of here's an episode that was a, definitely a lighter episode for sure. But when you hold it under scrutiny, there is there is a lot going on here. Specifically, when it comes to the line that Trelane says, you know, Kirk is clearly like, what do you want? You know, we've got, we're on a mission, you know, we got to back get back to our ship. And and Trelane is fascinated. What is Trelane fascinated with among the, the crew of the Enterprise? Battle, war. War. Yeah. Okay. War. He's fascinated gleefully, but also throwing it in their face about the war, or the, the conquest, the rates of conquest. And he says the line, Do you know that you're one of the few predator species that preys even on itself? That throwaway line is so deep and profound where you go... Well, he's right, you know, like we we pray on ourselves and it gives the Squire of Gothos more commentary than most people give it credit for. Well, and I, what I would add is that if you were to just look at history, you were to look at literature, you were to look at paintings, how much of it, you know, going back to Homer, how much of it is focused on war and battle and conquest? A lot of it. Well, and this is, you know, there's the, the rejection of what's called the great man theory of history. And the great man theory of history is look at all the great men, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, whoever it is. And that is what history is. And that doesn't look at the farmer, uh, women, almost entirely outside of history. And it's like, well, why did we choose the battles and the great men to be the things we look at in history? Well, it's because that's who was in charge. That's who won. That's what they were interested in. So if Trelane was looking not just through a telescope, but just looking at the literature, yeah, he would focus on battle too. Yeah. That's what's there. Like he he he's not just fascinated by humanity. He's fascinated by the by the barbarism. Agreed. Totally agree. The yeah. Barbarism. And here you have throughout this episode, Kirk is our role model. Kirk is our hero. Kirk is our spokesperson, uh, like he is often done to uh, defend humanity. Just like 
Picard has to do later mm-hmm. and in between, right. between, by the way, not just with Encounter and Farpoint, but all the way to the end with All Good Things, mm-hmm. which is absolutely a, like the very, one of the very best series finales ever, ever written. But, you know, Trelane is looking at an aspect of humanity that has since evolved, but has not been perfect, perfected. And like we talked about with Star Trek, it's about, it's about the striving for the uh, perfection of and the striving for yeah, utopian society. We're never going to get quite get there because we are killers. Killers. So we're not you know? going to kill today. We're not going to kill today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we quoted that quote more than maybe almost anything else. So, so when we get to that episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Taste of Armageddon for sure. <laughs> um, and DeSalle, he's ready to go. He's got his <laughs> hand on his phaser. He's like, let's let's fight this way out. Kirk settles him down, also mentions his name. And that is where Trelane finds out this guy is French. And then we get three moments with three of our supporting characters. The first is Trelane speaking in French and then saying how much he admires Napoleon. Again, Napoleon is not from, not from 900 years before. And then uh, he introduces McCoy and Sulu and Trelane says, Welcome, good physicianer. And then he bows and says, An honorable sir. And Sulu's reaction is just so right on. Is he kidding? I love his reaction. I love the moment. What's wrong with it, by the way, is that an honorable sir and the way the bow happens is actually like a Western American movie version of what Japanese culture is like. It's not what Japanese culture is like. And so if he was actually observing Earth, he would bow. That's not a Japanese bow. He doesn't bow properly. And it's like, he would actually be doing the Japanese version, not the, I watched a bunch of American movies about Japan <laughs> and do it that way. And then we get to Jaeger and he does the German March, which really seems like a World War II moment. Yeah, absolutely. Anything. Um, and it's all through this, he is also always playing and preening to that mirror. And how we do love our uniforms. And at this moment, DeSalle, in just a terrible bit of tactics, tries sneaking up on Trelane, clearly visible in the mirror. And Trelane freezes him, grabs his phaser, and says, oh. This won't kill. And this will. What does he shoot? The salt vampire. And what else does he shoot? The bird creature. So we just talked about how these two... Images are not out of Earth's past, but about out of the Enterprise past. And those are the two things that he chooses to shoot. Yep. I, I'm trying to find a reason, a clever sort of overanalyzed reason to determine why <laughs> he's, he chose two Star Trek props versus just, you know, some, some uh, you know, suit of armor. Uh, but no, those were the two props that he chose to shoot you and know, disintegrate. You know, it's funny, Scott, as, as much as obviously you and I love digging into this to a ridiculous degree. I think we also have to continue to remind ourselves that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, for sure. That's just what he shot. Right. <laughs> this could kill millions. And I love that Kirk just takes it out of his hand. Are we your next targets? Oh, how absolutely typical of your species. You don't understand something, so you become fearful. And this is exactly like you were pointing out about the only predator that preys upon itself. This is actually a deep line about humans. Well, let's go. We're getting out. Tut, tut, tut. Apparently, you need another demonstration of my authority. And Kirk just like stares him down and Trelane says, 
Yes, quite. So whisk him away, bong! And Kirk is now outside of the realm of protection of Trollane's little uh, oasis. And he gets a taste of the atmosphere and the Trollane brings him back before it can kill him. But this is where we see Trollane is not messing around. And like you said, he's a bad guy. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of Act One. Captain's log, stardate 2125.7. Science officer Spock reporting for Captain Kirk. We've completed 14th orbit of this planet without establishing contact with our missing officers or the party sent to find them. And again, the enhanced effects are great. I, I think it's another episode where it really shows. I, I, I love the enhanced effects. I love that that Gothos is you're seeing just how how violent the planet is. You're seeing like the lightning storms going on as the Enterprise is in orbit around the planet. I agree. I mean, the uh, the, the remastered effects, uh, this is another episode that I think absolutely is improved, improved greatly by the remastered effects. And the one thing they found is they found some weird area on the planet that maybe there are life forms at, and that's really the only place that our crew members could be surviving. We'll attempt to transport up any living beings our sensors detect. Shooting in the dark, Mr. Spock. And then he goes, his response is great. He's like, or? Or stand by and do nothing, Mr. Scott. And the look that he gives him is just like. <laughs> well, and again, to contrast this with the Galileo 7, mm-hmm. this is how Kirk behaved. Is like Spock in the Galileo 7 is the one constantly being a downer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's probably no way this is going to work. They're probably all dead. We're all going to die. And Kirk is the one on the ship going, would you rather we do nothing? Those are my friends out there. And now Spock is the one on the ship doing what Kirk basically was trying to do in the Galileo 7. Yep. And and again, a, a big a big leap, a big evolution in his, in his command abilities from the Galileo 7. Back in Trelane's drawing room, he's pointing out his battle flags that are from the Crusades. Nope. Those are not battle flags from the Crusades. They're flag- I figured you would have something to say yeah, about that. They're, they're flags out of the prop house. They look like totally modern 20th century flags. Um, and But as you said, Trelane totally fascinated with blood and violence and battle. Where could he possibly come from? Who is this maniac? George Decay, again, I just go, he was criminally underused, particularly later on. He's great. Absolutely, yeah. No, the first season is where he got the shine to shine the most. Uh, McCoy, in the previous act, had scanned him, and now he says, like, there's, there's no, no living creature there. You mean it shows he's dead? It doesn't even show that he exists at all. So fire without heat and terrain, you know, Kirk uh, deduces that He's not all knowledge. He's got this great power, but he makes mistakes. Discussing deep laid plans, I'll wager. And he's admiring that part of them because this is, in his mind, the military part. And Kirk, again, tries to use that. Kirk, constantly the observer, constantly strategizing. Your admiration is genuine. You must have respect for our sense of duty, too. Our ship has need of us. We have tasks to perform. Oh, I can't let you go now. I was getting a bit bored until you came. You must stay. When all's said and done, Trelane means business too. Yeah. Like he's playing around with them. He's he's uh, uh, relishing the moment of having this company, but he's not going to let them go. No. Even if we wanted to stay, our companions are missing us. Yes. I must experience your sense of concern, your grief at the separation. There are 400 men and women aboard that ship. Women? Women? 
You mean you actually have members of the fair sex among your crew? I mean, again, this is true. This is William Campbell just, it's the commitment to his performance is just what makes this episode so much fun to watch. So here's a question. So does Trelane have a body? Does Trelane have a body? Yes. Well, when Kirk tries to cut through the body, the body disappears, doesn't it? Sure, but he can make he makes Kirk disappear and reappear. So, but does he have a body? Why do you ask? I don't think he has a body. His parents are two green glowing orbs. When McCoy scans him, he doesn't see any. He says nothing there. And at the end, he gets kind of disappears. Yes, I don't think he has a body. Okay, which means that Trelane chose to be male, right? Because I don't. Does he have? Well, actually, he might have gender because his parents clearly seem to be male and female. Right. Okay. Um, and all of the heroes he studied on Earth were men, but Trelane clearly is. Is he? Well, this is why I'm asking the question. Uh, is he actually attracted to women? Or is he just enjoying playing the role of being attracted to the fairer sex? That's a great question. Uh, I would say that there is an attraction there because he is very, very taken with the female contingent when they are in the very next scene, especially Yeoman Teresa Ross. I will contend I don't think he's attracted to women. I think this is all a role because I don't think he's having only briefly does he actually have any emotions at all, which is what he says. He's doing all of this acting in order to feel something. Right. Right. Now, absolutely. You know what? You're right. Absolutely. He, he, his whole motive for everything that he's doing is to be able to feel and to keep the feeling going, not have it like become so fleeting. I think, I mean, we talked about Charlie X, obviously there's lots of connections between Trelane and Charlie, Charlie X. They're both children. They're both very, very powerful. Uh, I don't think that the energy beings that Trelane is related to have anything to do with the ones that Charlie X is. I, I think they're different. So they're not Thasians. I don't think so at all. And I'll tell you why when we get there. But but, but what I do think that's interesting is that Charlie is a person with massive emotions that he doesn't know how to deal with. He can't control them. And the people that raised him, the beings that raised him, they don't even love. They don't have any of those emotions. Trelane is exactly the opposite. He doesn't have these emotions. He desperately wants them. Right. He wants to feel the emotions. That's why he brought them down there yeah. to begin with. That's yeah. why he latched onto the Enterprise when it was passing by. He's like, oh, something know. I could experience. Yeah. Because he's been observing. He's been watching like TV for a long time and going, man, these people, they're passionate. They're interesting. Yeah. <laughs> why don't I feel any of that? I've right. never wanted to risk my life to fight the battle, to get the girl, to do all the stuff. Do you mean that you actually have members of the fairer sex among your crew? And they must be all very beautiful. And I shall be so very gallant to them. Here, let me fetch them down at once. No. He grabs his arm. So there is a physical side. You just asked, does he have a physical body? Well, he he certainly has a physical body right now. I'm asking, does the actual Trelane have a physical body and oh, i don't I think see. he does oh, i think that, he is, that i don't think he does yeah i think he's put himself in a body but right. i don't think he i don't think this species has corporeal form i see no um, i hear you <laughs> this game has gone on long enough there's a crucial operating personality i can do anything i want Trelane is already uh hinting about the entitlement he's already showing his true his true colors so to speak that he's just a spoiled brat and right at this moment there's a transporter signal 
And Trelane goes, what does that mean? And he, Kirk says, it means the party's over, thanks to Mr. Spock. And he calls out Mr. Spock right there. Which and is a key bit up. of writing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they beam up. They're on board the Enterprise. And Kirk's like, how did you do this? And I love the answer. It's like, we just beamed up everything that was alive. Which means Trelane is not a life form as we know it, or he'd be beaming through now. So there is definitely something to your observation about like like in reality what kind of form does he have is he just a ball of energy uh like his parents or like why didn't his physical body because when kirk tried to block him from whisking down the women you know he stopped his arm from making that motion no he clearly is inhabiting a physical form that's definitely true um uh we're back on the bridge kirk's like let's get the hell out of here (laughs) yep Uh, i love that uhura asks doctor what was it what was down there well, it was a... You, oh, forget it. And then you hear the words, Look! There is Trelane looking all confident and proud of himself yep. on the bridge of the Enterprise. And you hear that, that fanfare music again. And first thing Trelane says... We'll roll your weapons, Captain. Don't you display your weapons? Once again, the first thing he draws into are the weapons, the barbarism, and the war. Now, this scene of Trelane on the bridge was actually William Campbell's first day playing Mm. Trelane. And it was on day two of filming for The Squire of Gothos, which was on Monday, October 31st, 1966, which was Halloween. Mm. And the early treatments of Squire of Gothos... Spock was not featured enough. And some of the other producers suggested, well, why don't we just have Spock join McCoy and DeSalle and Jaeger on the landing party? But it was Gene Kuhn's idea to keep Spock on the Enterprise because he liked the idea of Trelane being so annoyed that Mr. Spock dampened his party, ruined his party by beaming the landing party aboard. I, I think that's such a good choice. I'm so It's so interesting hearing who, who figured one thing out. That is a fantastic choice, A, because it gives Trelane a thing to do, but it also gives Nimoy a thing to play off of. And he is, I love him throughout this entire episode. I think I Nimoy's great. Yep. Isn't quite human, is he? My father is from the planet Vulcan. And are its natives predatory? Not generally. There's pause. But there have been exceptions. That's great. And, and Trelane, Trelane says to, to Kirk, he goes, uh, you'll see there was punishment. And Kirk says, on the contrary, I commend his actions. And then this line. But I don't like him. And the way it was written in the script was exactly perfectly written. It wasn't just I don't like him. It was I dot, 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 don't dot, dot, dot. Like, like the pauses were inflected right. in the actual screenplay. And Trelane, as uh, when the way William Campbell delivered the role, de- delivered the line, he just played it so perfectly. So, so, and this is the thing, you know, I think the biggest difference in how you and I feel about this episode, we both totally agree about who Trelane is. And for you, I think it's, you, you enjoy his qualities and they irritate me, you know? And, and of course they're doing it. They're not irritating me because there's something wrong with the performance or because there's something wrong. They're doing exactly what they're trying to do. But I, and the thing I, I think the reason that I that I've gr- always gravitated towards this episode was because here you have this character who, of course, we have well, come to realize is this you know spoiled little kid, but he's got this great power. But here you have the tone of Trelane is one way. He's this playful character adding levity to the episode. But then you have the way that 
Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and the rest of the cast, they're playing their characters like they play their characters. They're not changing the way they play their characters to adjust to the tone. Right. It's a it's a it's a very unique blend which makes this episode feel unique. I feel like, you know, ultimately while there are elements that we've seen before and there are elements to the message that we will see later, the way this episode is told is so unique. And like the episode that preceded it, sure leave, this episode feels a lot more sci fantasy than it does science fiction. Mm-hmm. I just love how you have this, these two different tones acting at the same time, and it just works. It's the blend that works, and that's what gives Squire such a unique feel. Well, and I think, I think Shatner and Nimoy are key to that. They know how to incorporate William Campbell's performance into how they play Kirk and Spock. Um, and right now, Kirk is doing a move that he does a lot. He's just saying, no, you're going to get off my ship. I love it. <laughs> get off my ship. <laughs> Nonsense. I have an absolutely enchanting sojourn on Gotha's plan for all of you. And you shan't spoil it for me. And mid-sentence, we bong, and we are now in the drawing room at the dinner table. And tasteful. Don't you agree? And I love Sulu with the napkin just goes, no. No. <laughs> By the way, we're, we got a bong moment without the actual bong. Oh, there's no bong <laughs> yeah, there? Yeah, there's no bong there. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you've been uh, quite derelict in your social duties, Captain. You haven't introduced me to the charming contingent of your crew. And he introduces Ahura, who Trelane calls a Nubian prize. When Trelane first kisses Uhura's hand, you can see that she's kind of charmed by him until he makes the comment. Take it on one of your raids of conquest, no doubt, Captain. No doubt. That is such a hard comment. And she yeah. is clearly annoyed, and her response is is right on point. What, what's so interesting, because there's several, throughout the original series, there's several little comments like that. And what I love about how they handle it is they don't ignore it. She has a reaction to that. Yep. But it's very clear that the Federation is way past it. Way past it. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, 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 really? Are you kidding? And then we move on to Yeoman Teresa Ross. Is this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? And every single cut to Nimoy is great. His reaction shots are fantastic. Now, Yeoman Ross was played by model Vanita Wolf, making her TV acting debut. And in just a few months, she would be on the cover, the July 1967 cover of Playboy magazine. Oh, all and right. Pretty soon after that, she got married and never acted again. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's good. I think she's good in this episode. She actually is yeah, good in this good. episode. But Steve, now you know, was Yeoman Rand? It was Yeoman Rand. Yeah, I figured. If you think about the way this next this next yeah. act plays out, makes a lot more sense. It would have made a lot more sense, and it would have had a much much bigger impact for Kirk to be jealous of Trelane's intentions with Yeoman Rand. Well, let's hold that for a second because I think it's an interesting thing, but let's wait till we get there. Um, the next introduction, of course, is Mr. Spock, which Turlane says, You do realize, don't you, that it's in deference to the captain that I brought you here? Affirmative. <laughs> and Turlane says, I don't know if I like your tone. It's most challenging. Is that what you're doing, challenging me? I love this next line. I object to you. I object to intellect without discipline. I object to power without constructive purpose. 
and Kirk is looking on and Spock is saying this with a little smirk of pride, like he's proud of Spock for standing up to Trelane. I believe so strongly in that line. I had such a strong reaction watching it this time because this I firmly believe. Again, it goes to this feeling I have about entitlement is that, and again, I've dealt with a lot of people that are powerful or observed people that are powerful who it's exactly this intellect without discipline, power without constructive purpose. And that is sums up Trelane to a T. It's right there. That's Trelane right there. Well, and you know, there's that expression, you know, born on third base and think you hit a triple. And I've known a lot of people like that, that, that because of their luck, they think they're more special than they Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. and then treat other people really poorly. And that makes me mad. Um, (laughs) um, and, but I like that Trelane actually, this is the first thing about Spock that he likes. Oh, Mr. Spock, you do have one saving grace after all. You're ill-mannered. He calls Uhura a little wood nymph and asks her to play the harpsichord, and she says, Oh, I don't know how to play this. Of course you do. So he gives her the ability to play something that she's never played. Yeah. And, like, I feel like maybe maybe there's something to my earlier that's the, you're, you're, that's, the, that's the first one I've seen where I'm like okay he can get into people's brains on some level like he can get in on some level I mean clearly there he has his limits and he's not he's 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 very fallible but he's got more powers than we actually see and here's another here's a hint of how he can get like his powers yeah. Are, yeah. are can clearly affect people you know yeah. and their minds so and the song that she plays the song that Uhura plays on the harpsichord is Roses from the South by Johann Strauss Jr. All right, then. Trelane starts dancing with Yeoman Ross. Sulu's had enough. How far did we go along with this charade? And I love Kirk's response. Until we can think our way out. In the meantime, we accept his hospitality. It's again, he's a good Just leader. Just be patient. Yep. And then McCoy says, You should taste his food. Straw would taste better than his meat. Water a hundred times better than his brand, and nothing has any taste at all. This next scene, this next moment, this interplay, this dialogue, mm. this the way that Kirk and Spock and McCoy assess the situation. This is what I love about these these characters. Their their ability to come from their very, very polarized different emotions and perspectives and the the way they they figure it out, you know, the way that they analyze the situation and they come to their ultimate conclusion. But it is the chemistry between William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, the way that the scene is written, the way that they all, they are all equals in their assessment of the situation. This is just one scene is this one scene is a, is a great example of just what I love about the three of them together. I totally agree. And what I think what's really evident in this scene in particular is how they're operating as one brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like not any of them are coming up with this idea, which is that Trelane is being helped by a machine, but each one is saying something that leads the other one to the next thing that says something that leads the other one to the next thing. Um, I also like that we get a definition from Mr. Spock on his use of the word fascinating. Fascinating is a word I use for the unexpected. In this case, I should think interesting would suffice. In this case, it's only interesting because they've established that he's looking through a telescope 
and he sees the images, but he doesn't understand the substance. Mm -hmm. So that's what's interesting, but it's not fascinating. They, it's, it's, it's completely understandable, which makes it interesting. Well, and somehow that leads them to the conclusion that all the power can't be coming from him. He has to be using some kind of machine. And there's even estimation that this must be a really big machine, <laughs> yeah. which I like, how do you, 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 how could you possibly make that estimation? You don't understand this technology at all. But one thing we notice is he's dancing in front of the mirror, the mirror. with Yeoman Ross. And by the way, I love that Uhura is now having a good time playing the harpsichord. Mm. That mirror is part of his audience, his ego. He never wanders. Which I go, yeah, except when he was on the bridge of the Enterprise, that was pretty far away from the mirror. But they, they, he had a much, much bigger power source, and that's what they're deducing. Right. That is some kind of uh, power conduit. Will that make this whole area surrounding the castle uh, habitable to human, to human beings? And they go, well, no, that would probably be a much, much bigger device. And that much bigger device is what allowed Trillane to be on the bridge of the Enterprise. And now we see Kirk do what Kirk does, which is he spent the first two acts gathering information, being an observer, trying to figure out what's going on. And now, like in Corbomite, like in what little girls are made of, like in so many episodes already, he's going to make his move. I think I can turn his lights off. At the source. And I am so glad you brought up the Corbomite maneuver because this moment is fueled by Kirk's success in, mm -hmm. in pulling the bluff in the Corbomite maneuver. So now he's going to take another risk. He feels like he has enough information and fueled, uh, uh, confident by the success that he had pulling off the Corbomite maneuver, right. he is now going to take another calculated risk and he leans into it and he is committed and he is uh, fully confident here because of all of the information and, and all the deductive reasoning that he just did with Spock and McCoy. Well, and the thing I'll add is that like Corbomite, it isn't just a bluff, it's a performance. Just like he says, death has little meaning to us. If it has none to you, then attack us now. We grow annoyed at your foolishness. Just like that, now he's going to put off another performance. He, with that Kirk swagger, says, Don't be too upset by what you see, gentlemen. After all, his actions are those of an immature, unbalanced mind. And he gets, uh, he gets Trillane riled up. He yep. stops, uh, stops dancing, and he's ready. he's ready for a fight. And to what you mentioned before, not only is he playing up the swagger and the arrogance and insulting Trelane, but he also acts like the jealous lover and says, Yes, I want you to leave my crewmen alone. I want you to leave my crew women alone, too. You don't have to dance with them. I don't like it. See, now, if that was Rand, that would have had a better impact. I disagree. And this is why. Is that because that's why, as you were saying it before, I had to think about it, is that the reason it's different is here it is clearly fake. But if it wasn't fake, if there was some kind of I motivation, I think it would be less it, good. See, I think it would have been better because it would have continued the subtle affection that they 100%. have. Hundred percent. No, it totally would have done that. But then he would be being irritated throughout all of the attentions paid to Yeoman Rand instead of what it's just a different beat work. Is that that is an actual real emotion happening, and this is I'm totally faking an emotion. And the fun of this moment to me is. We know he's pretending to be jealous. Right, that's true. Whereas if, if it was Rand, he wouldn't be pretending to be jealous. He would be upset. Right. Um, this is the subtlety of writing and of performance. Because also, 
Kirk Shatner plays fake jealous. He doesn't play jealous. He plays Captain Kirk pretending to be jealous. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I see your point, but I think that there would have been something to totally. it. There would have been a thing there. If, if Kirk was genuinely jealous because it was it was rant. Why, well, I do believe that the dear captain is jealous of I don't me. care what you believe. Just keep your hands off her. I, I, you know what I love about this moment here is that uh, this entire episode so far and, and, and throughout the first season in general, you know, Shatner's performance as Kirk was right on point. You know, he didn't go go over the top. He didn't go except maybe as the uh, dark Kirk in The Enemy Within, right. but that's what the role called for. But this moment, he he does lean into it. He does he does yeah. dial it up. But it, because- but Kirk is dialing it up. Kirk is dialing it up because he's playing yeah. along, because he's performing. Well, and what he's performing is part of what he's observed with Trelane is a value system that isn't real for him, but he needs to play within that value system, which is the jealous lover, the bar- the barbarian- the duelist, all those things, the person who believes in honor, all that stuff, because that's what Trelane thinks of him. And so he's got to play into that role. You fight for the attention, the admiration, the possession of women. If it's fighting that you want. And he slaps him in the face. You may have it. Are you challenging me to a duel? If you have the courage. Now, there's a great blooper. Do you ever see the Star Trek bloopers? Of course, yeah. Yeah, there's a great blooper where you see uh, William Campbell go, are you challenging me to a duel? And then William Shatner goes, yes, if you have the courage. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because we had so little. I can remember at at my first Star Trek, my first really and only Star Trek convention, I remember going into that tiny little room at whatever hotel we were at and sitting in the dark and watching those bloopers for the first time. Those bloopers, which were like so faded yeah. and, and you know, they were like, like mid-20th generation. The audio was really bad. I mean, uh, uh, you, you really could barely make out what was going on. But they showed those things. And I mean, I, I love the bloopers, you know, more for sentimental reasons. But yeah. that I, I vividly remember that blooper from Squire yeah. Gothos where Kirk goes, yes, if you have the courage. And he goes, this is this is great. And he goes and gets a box of pistols. A match set, just like the pair that slew your heroic Alexander Hamilton. Just to point it out again, Alexander Hamilton duels 1804. That's not 900 years ago. <laughs> and these pistols don't actually look like the ones that were used for that duel because I had to go look up a picture of what those pistols look like because that's what That's I what do. we do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the end of the act. Act three we come back with Kirk examining the pistol as he recaps sort of everything that's going on in his log. By the way, Shatner and Captain Kirk do clearly not know proper weapon handling protocols. He <laughs> liter- not only does he have his finger on the trigger the whole time, which is a big no-no, particularly with a gun without a safety, which these pistols don't have, he actually looks down the barrel at one point with his finger on the trigger. And it's like, oh. dude. <laughs> now, now when I was, when I was growing up and, and I was caught in Star Trek uh, stuff when I was a kid, which I still have because it is extremely sentimental to me and I cherish it like, like the rosebud of my collection, the original Star Trek trading cards that came out from tops mm-hmm. in 1976 so when I was going to my first conventions in uh, 1979, between 79 and 86, uh, before I just was able to uh, start working and afford and just buy the entire Topps card set complete, 
I had to buy individual cards here and there from dealers who were selling them at the conventions. And I remember there is one card from that 1976 set. It is an image of Kirk standing there with one of the shotguns. Mm -hmm. And the uh, caption on the card says, Duel at Gothas. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that Captain Kirk looks so cool standing there holding an old fashioned gun like that. Yeah. And I, again, even back then, I just loved the episode. Uh, but it wasn't until years later when I got like a, a job and I started making money that I was able to just like, you know, stop by the cards here and there uh, one by one. And I was just able to just like find a dealer who had the set in mint condition. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm done. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Enough talk. Let's get on with it. As you will, sir. Honor will be served, eh? Oh, wait. That's the one challenged. I claim the first shot. Kirk's like, we shoot together. It's my game and my rules. But if you need to be persuaded. And then he aims his weapon at Mr. Spock. And he goes, uh, okay, fine. And Spock is like, Captain. And Kirk shakes his head like, no way. Which I kind of went like, well, these pistols only have one shot. And, and by the way, these, these weapons are really inaccurate. That's right. So he might miss. <laughs> um, and, but we say, okay. And Trelane aims and Kirk stands there ready to die, essentially. And the, the thought that I had here, and I've had this thought many times, is that there are all sorts of movies and stories where the bad guy forces the good guy to agree to a thing. If I do this, you'll, you know, it's like, if I don't kill your kid, you will open up the safe. Um and I always wonder, it's like, you know what? If a bad guy at gunpoint forces me to make a deal, I don't really feel like I have to obey the thing I agreed to. I was forced to agree to this thing. So part of me is like, you know, Kirk, you could just shoot that mirror right now. Like, why wait? <laughs> but that's not what happens. He waits. And Trelane, much like Alexander Hamilton, at least according to the musical, he throws away his shot. I did not know that. Well, have you seen Hamilton? Uh, well, I, I saw it on Disney Plus, but I forgot about that. <laughs> of course, well, I mean, how, how many times does Hamilton in the musical say, I will not throw away my shot? Right, right. And then in the duel, the most important moment of his life, he throws away his throws shot. Throws away the shot, right, yeah. right. Yeah, Which is wow. what Trelane does. Huh. Uh, whether or not that's actually what happened in the Hamilton duel, there's a little bit of controversy about that. Um, uh, it, it, might, it's surprising to know that a a... 21st century musical is actually not perfectly accurate about the life of Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Although I, I firmly believe that that is the greatest piece of art so far this century. Oh, wow. That's what I think of. Oh, Hamilton. excellent. I think it's, un, I think it's stunning, stunningly brilliant, but now it's Kirk's turn. He aims fires at the mirror. There's a huge explosion. We get all sorts of weird sci-fi noises, including like a boing. <laughs> Trelane was standing there, ready to take the shot, ready to take Kirk's shot. Mm -hmm. What would have happened if Kirk shot him? Would yeah. he have disappeared? Would yeah. it have gone through him? That's like, what I think. But what would have been the result of that? Like, okay, you shot me and it went through me. Like, what would have happened after that? Well, I think we have pretty good evidence of how it would play out when Kirk gets the sword and slices at him and he disappears and reappears. Right. He just would have disappeared. He would have just, and well, and the same thing. Okay. That was fun. Let's move on. But it's such a, it's still, it's the way that, that Shatner plays the scene, pointing the gun, ready to fire at Trillane, and then he moves to the right. Well, let me ask the question in a slightly different way. Was there ever any moment that Shatner considered shooting Trillane? That's, that's my question. I don't think he ever did. 
Like he, he, this was just part of the ploy. This was all part of the plan. He, his intent all along was to shoot the mirror, but he had to do it in a way that, that he, he had to basically surprise Trillane before yeah. Trillane was onto him. Because Tr- he knows that he can't shoot Trillane, particularly when Trillane shoots in the air. Well, the, he knows the guy's not going to let me just kill him right now. Right. It's not going to work. So he shoots the mirror. Trillane is furious. And here's the thought that I had, and this is why I, I wanted to table this discussion earlier. You know, we're going to experience all these super powerful creatures in Star Trek from the Organians and the Q and Charlie X's people. And, the, you know, there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I think Trelane and his people are much closer to the people that run the Shoreleaf planet than they are to the Charlie X people. And the reason for that is that Trelane uses technology. Charlie X doesn't need any technology. He has these powers. Trelane needs technology and the technology creates real stuff, which is what he describes like the transporter room. I can build all this real stuff. I think that the, that Trelane's body is like the mannequins in Shoreleaf. He has inhabited a physical form and I think he creates things with technology. I mean, I agree with that. I think that the fact that he is able, I, I mean, clearly we're, whereas we've established, especially by the end, that like his parents, he, his, his being, his essence is an energy force, right. but he is living this out. He's living out this uh, particular moment in a human form. So you think that it's actually not a human body type of form. You well, think that's, that's what actually says. a mechanical device. McCoy like, says there's no life form there. Okay, but wouldn't McCoy have picked up that it was a mechanical device? Well, I, well I, and again, it's just a TV show. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Get that, a life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I think they're clearly he is manufacturing real things. That's what he says. And so I do think, I do think he exists. I think there is a body there. Right. It's just not a life form. Right, I, I agree with That's that. That's what yeah. made me think of the, man, of the Black Knight in Shoreleave. Because the Shoreleave creatures like Finnegan like Ruth can be totally human and you can touch them, but they're also not really life forms. They're really just manufactured. Right. Go back, go back to your ship and prepare. You're all dead men. You especially captain. We're on the bridge again. It's let's get the hell out of here as fast as we can. Uh, Yeoman Ross is still in the dress. I like she asked to change and Kirk's response is turn on your glass slippers. The ball is over. Gladly captain. And then the look that Kirk gives, he turns around and sort of almost looks at the camera, breaks the fourth wall. doesn't mm-hmm. quite do that. It's just this like sort of sly look. It's a clear, pretty girl. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she, she is pretty moment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, for sure. And then as we just as we think we're going to get away, <laughs> there's Gothos. Gothos ahead playing cat and mouse. Every time they take evasive action to speed path Gothos, Gothos again coming up. Clearly, Trelane is not going to go away quietly. Decelerate into orbit. Prepare transporter room. Captain, not beaming down. Yes, I am, Dr. McCoy. I am going to see our playful Mr. Trelane and whatever it takes to make him give up our ship. And as soon as he steps in the turbo lift, he is back on Gothos in a courtroom setting of sorts and interesting that we're following the one-two punch of the uh, the menagerie and court-martial oh that's true yeah, with another with trial another trial but this one is obviously quite different and uh, I love Jerry Finneman's lighting of this scene 
where you see Kirk standing there at the podium and you don't see the noose. You see the shadow of the noose behind him. That's just such a great image. Well, and this is, this is, you know, I've said this over and over and over again, but this might be the best example of this show being theatrical. This isn't real. Like Trelane didn't create a courtroom. He could have created a courtroom, but frankly, the uh, Desilu couldn't afford a courtroom. And so what they do is go, what, well, what can we do? Well, instead of create, this is classic, particularly theater of this era, is that this is when we have the beginning of what we call black box theater. And black box theater is, I can't build a set. And so I'm going to be just in an empty space and with a single prop and a single bit of lighting, I'm going to give you a sense of an environment without creating a realistic set. And this is black box theater because all we have is we have a stand, we have a spotlight, we have a judge's uh, you know, desk, and we have the shadow of a noose. That is right out of a play. It is not realistic in any way at all. Well, and, and that ends to the sort of surreal uh, fantasy elements of this episode. And so, so when it came time to film the scene, so the wig that William Campbell was wearing was not the original wig that they had given him to wear. Mm. The original wig was more of a, of a French period wig. Like a Louis the 14th wig? Yes, exactly. And it, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't fit the setting. So William Campbell said, this isn't the right wig. We have to get the right wig. Right. So William Shatner overheard this conversation. So he goes over and he says, what's going on? So William Campbell says, well, this isn't the right wig. The the, the wig I should be wearing is the one that we actually right. wind up sawing him wear. The white uh, powder judge wig. The, right. Yeah. The white powder judge wig. So Shatner says, well, what's the difference? No one who watches the show is going to know the difference. And William Campbell said, well, I know the difference. So Don McDougal called up Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn came down to the set and he said, he's right. Get the other wig. And that is why we got the white powder wig that made the episode. And you know what? I would have known the difference. I mean, maybe not when I was seven, but but like there is that I, I can picture the Louis Fourteenth hairstyle that you're talking about. And that is not the British barrister wig hair that's a it's a different thing but the important thing is that that William Campbell he he cared enough he was already giving just such a fully realized committed performance mm-hmm. and he when possible and probable he made a decision to keep that commitment going and his producer backed him up which is great Apparently, he didn't cause a stink about all the other anachronistic stuff that existed <laughs> in this episode, but I'm glad they got the wig right. And this is, again, to, to your point from earlier, this is so similar to Encounter at Farpoint. Mm-hmm, He's putting mm-hmm. him on trial. And now, Captain James Kirk, you stand accused of the high crime of treason against a superior authority, conspiracy, and the attempt to foment insurrection. And he asks, how do you plead? I haven't come to plead in your court, Trelane. Can I tell you about the big thought I had here? Tell me about the big thought, Steve. So we always think about the Federation as America on some level, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, even when we get down to Omega glory and stuff, um, American ideals of freedom and freedom of speech and country all working together and all the things that maybe we don't live up to as often as we'd like, but, but our, the idealized version of ourselves. And we often think of us as America going out into the world and that's America in 
you know, whether it's balance of terror in the Cold War or whether it's a private little war with Vietnam and things like that. Suddenly occurred to me, how often in the series are we encountering societies and alien species that are way more powerful than us? America is particularly in 1966, but one can still argue today, the most powerful, most uh, economically powerful, militarily powerful, most influential country in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That actually isn't the Federation when they come up against the Organians or when they come up against it's it's actually something very different a lot of the time. I am so glad you brought this up because that is absolutely one of the topics I have down in my notes oh, to really? talk to you about with regards to the Squire of Gothos. Really? Because starting with, okay, with Charlie X, uh, which was a very, uh, mm -hmm. certainly the, the last act, the last uh, uh, moments of that episode were very, very deep and somber. But then with the Shirley Planet mm -hmm. and definitely with the Squire of Gothos, and then, you know, you got uh, Aaron de Mercy, mm -hmm. you got Return of the Archons. And this is something that Kirk even says in Aaron de Mercy. You know, you think you're the most powerful beings out there and it's so humbling when you realize that you're not. Even in arena, when they come across the metrons, mm -hmm. uh, the absolutely you know, they're so there are you, the the clearly the Federation and and you know the Enterprise crew they are they are advanced to a certain level just because they are a, able to reach out to the stars and go for, to other planets and 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 explore the far end of the galaxy. It does not mean that they are the most powerful beings in the universe. They are far from it, as we've seen time and time again in Star Trek. And I think that that is one of the one of the great things that helps our heroes in Star Trek, in all of these shows, that they are we are still learning about ourselves by our interactions with other beings. We are still learning about our flaws and about our mistakes and so that we can continue to evolve and grow. And I think that is a quintessential standout moment of the Squire of Gothos. And that is also a moment, like many of the episodes that I just listed, except for obviously uh, Charlie X, but... Uh, so indicative of what Gene Kuhn brought to the table as a producer. Well, and I want to take this one step forward just for, for a moment, which is I want to propose a thought experiment. So what if at this moment we go, okay, the Enterprise crew, this is not America. The Federation is not America. What if for this moment we think of Trelane as America and we think of Kirk as the less powerful group, as the Vietnamese? And think about how many times has America, and particularly right in the mid-60s, reached out into the world and thought arrogantly that they could control less powerful people and didn't understand why those people just didn't do what we thought they should do, that they didn't embrace our culture, that they didn't just submit, that in fact they kept fighting and fighting and fighting and not listening to us, and how much arrogance has America brought into the world just 100% convinced that they were right. That is uh, obviously, look, considering when this episode was produced in late 1966, that is absolutely fitting. And it's still relevant today for no question about it. Uh, it is also something, if you look at the Galileo 7, you could look at the giant ape-like creatures as the Vietnamese and that they will, you know, obviously are, 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 
not going to conform because you know they've got the strength in numbers. So, so what you're proposing here in the case of Squire Gothos is that Trelane actually represents America because yes. he expects the others to conform, and he's got this confidence and this arrogance and this entitlement, and that the Enterprise crew actually represent, in this case, for this episode and the time period, the Vietnamese, and they are not going to conform. Well, that is a very, very clever and provocative and very good way, I got to say, uh, of looking through the other end of the telescope at Star Trek and about society and about themes that we're exploring here. That is, and it's also, I have to say, one of those mind blown moments because it works because that theory actually makes sense well and think of this line that kirk has we've made you angry with our will to survive have we right right yeah that's absolutely something yeah. that you could hear you know in a, in a very a symbolic sense that uh, north vietnam say to the americans well and and this is again i this never we're never going to make this a political show and i don't want to make this a political show but there is a there's a contradiction that i've always thought about with america that is we believe in democracy. I think you believe in democracy. I believe Absolutely. in democracy. I believe in American freedom and liberty and the Bill of Rights and all those things. And we believe those things are great. And we spend a lot of time, particularly in the 60s, but even to this day, saying part of our mission is to spread American ideals, to spread democracy around the world because we think we're right. But the other thing we do, particularly right at this moment, is endlessly complain about our democracy and how it doesn't work. And so the contradiction between we have to spread this and boy, it doesn't work is a really weird contradiction that is very difficult, I think, for Americans to face. Well, well when you look at the perspective that you're bringing here, uh, which, which definitely fits, but when you look at the ways, especially Errand of Mercy is a, you know, it's an yeah. episode that I cannot wait to get to where, again, I, clearly the, you know, Kirk and, and Spock and the Enterprise and the Federation represent America. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and how wrong they were to to force their ideals on the Organians when they were no better, really, than the Klingons. Um, but this it, it, it is definitely a theme that runs through, especially the Gene Kuhn produced episodes of the original series, and definitely other Star Trek shows that we've gotten uh, since. The original series was canceled in 69, and it is also something that still is very resonant today. You, you know what I think? We, we This conversation comes up, and I know we're digressing from the episode, but this conversation comes up a lot uh, to this day about, is that really Star Trek? Is that, and, and, and I'm probably, my guess is I'm probably a little bit more flexible than you are in terms of what I see as Star Trek. But I think one of the keys is that it is on some levels an idealized society, but not too idealized. And it is a show in which we explore real human conditions and flaws. And in fact, in the original series, we are constantly coming up against our inadequacies. And so it's the balance between striving for an ideal, but maintaining our humanity and looking at our flaws that actually is where the sweet spot for Star Trek is in the balance. Yeah, well, well, listen, the original series did have that sweet spot. Yeah. And so did Next Gen, and so did DS Nine. Uh, as far as the Star I don't Trek think shows, DS9 does. See, yeah. I, I think that DS Nine sometimes some episodes, uh, especially from the third season on, were just like Next Gen from the third season on. That show was was just 
spectacular. But the the more recent Star Trek shows have have explored these very same issues, I have to say, mm-hmm. but ha- have done so without sort of having the discovery uh, sort of uh, have that aspirational quality that the Enterprise did in the first two Star Trek shows. And that's what I miss about the newer shows. I still like the newer shows. I still like Discovery. I think it's gotten it, it keeps getting better with each passing season. I, you know, I'm sure the same will hold true for Picard. And I can't wait for Strange New Worlds. Mm-hmm. I really can't wait for Strange New Worlds. I feel like that's going to be the Star Trek series that I want. But that's why I gravitate and still hold the original series with such high ideals because they they did all of these things. They showed that that we were still learning and that 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 there it, it, it did hold a mirror up to society and culture and America in so many ways while still being positive and aspirational. Okay, I have one more thing to say because on this digression and I you know if you guys have stuck with us this far. Yeah, please you know, keep please please stay with us, everyone. Um is it occurs to me that there are certain mythologies where the mythologies have enough enough ambiguity that they're open to interpretation and part of their ability to be interpreted is what makes them evergreen so we can discuss forever what it meant for adam and eve to be kicked out of the garden of eden or for cain to kill abel those are stories that we could analyze every which way because while they're great stories they're also stories that have room for interpretation that's the original series. Absolutely. And the fact that we are, you know, now into our 19th episode of Enterprise yeah. Incidents and and we are interpreting it in so many different ways is is a testament to just how much depth and how much uh dynamic is there and that it's 55 years later and that you're we're, we're we're talking about what these episodes meant to us when we were you know six seven eight years old and and how what these episodes mean to us now as middle-aged uh, grown-ups and uh, and just all of the the history that we've experienced in our personal lives and in in the world especially over the last year and a half uh and that there, there is there are elements to Star Trek that that become more resonant, like what we talked about with Miri. But this is definitely a really interesting digression. <laughs> so, but right now, Kirk is doing what he always does. He's trying to save his ship, and he is willing to sacrifice himself to just have his ship. And Trelane is trying to get that guilty plea. Then vent your anger on me alone. I'm willing to pay the price for chancing wrong. Oh, then you do admit to the charge. Yes, anything. And I love there's this hand gesture. This is where the big Kirk comes out a bit. Just allow the Enterprise to continue its journey. Now, the earlier versions of the Squire of Gothos were criticized for where, where Kirk wasn't proactive enough. And Gene Kuhn wanted to punch that up. Hmm. And this, what happens for the rest of this episode is, is a big way that Gene Kuhn made Kirk more proactive in the situation instead of reactive. And- that is, in, for the second time in this episode, he's about to pull off another another maneuver, yeah. another risk. And Trelane to go so far as to bring the noose over and expect Kirk to put his head through it. And, you know, at this point, Kirk is like done playing games. Uh, uh, at least he's done playing this game because what he's about to propose to Trelane is – 
the most dangerous game. <laughs> and when I say the most dangerous game, I mean that literally the, like, I think that story is like a hundred years old, uh, where a big game hunter goes after a human being. And that, that has been shot many times in film. Mm -hmm. It was even remade recently as a uh, series on Quibi, <laughs> um, which is actually really, really good. But this is uh, an element that Paul Schneider definitely was inspired to put into the the climax of the Squire of Gothos. But the way that Kirk proposes it, it for, for the second time in just one episode, we are seeing Kirk being extremely proactive yeah. and and very risky, again, emboldened by that confidence from the Corbomite maneuver. Well, and understanding something about this character, because in Act 4, after Trelane has sentenced him to you know, hang by the neck until you are dead, dead, dead. dead, dead. dead. <laughs> Trelane is thrilled because he's like, I actually was angry. I actually experienced genuine rage. This experiment has been successful. I'm glad you weren't disappointed. And this is again, Kirk the Observer. Is this clues him into a thing because Trelane's like, well, I'm done. And Kirk is still angry, of course. And Trelane's jealous. Would that I could have sustained that moment. You know, and he brings the noose over and Trelane says, Oh, this is becoming quite tiresome. It's also very easy. And this is where Kirk has now figured out his next move. That's your problem, Trelane. Everything is easy. And this is the key too. Part of what makes Kirk so good at this is he figures out what other people want. He figured out what Ruck wanted. He figured out what other characters want and gets them to do what he wants them to do. And what Trelane wants is to experience emotions. Here you have an opportunity to experience something really unique, and you're wasting it. You want to commit murder? Go ahead. But where's the sport in a simple hanging? That's the key word, sport. sport. And Trelane is intrigued. A personal conflict between us. Not like the duel before, but the real thing. The stakes, a human life, mine. But there is, there's got to be something in it for me. Yeah. You know, I will play along with this game with you, Trelane. Just allow the Enterprise to continue on its journey. And Trelane says, great, let's do it. But immediately, as soon as he puts Kirk outside the castle so that he can run and hide, so to speak, Trelane has already broken the rules. Because he does not let the Enterprise go. Kirk can't even call up to the Enterprise to tell them to uh, warp out of orbit. And Trelane just appears and is ready to chop Kirk into two. So was there any ever any moment that Trelane was even thinking about honoring his side Absolutely of the deal? Absolutely not. I don't think so I, I never thought for a minute that, that cause, because you know what? All this time, Trelane has acted like the spoiled brat that he is. Yeah. Well, and this is why I say, like, if you make a deal with someone who's forcing you to make a deal, and particularly if they're not even keeping up their end of the deal, you don't have to keep the deal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're out of that deal. <laughs> Kirk rolls, grabs him, tries to get away. He doesn't go very far. I don't think Kirk in this sequence is that great. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't go very far. His moves aren't that smart. Yeah. This, this is, this is actually a scene where you kind of wish that they used the, the, the obvious stuntman like it did at the end of court martial. It's pretty weak. Kirk grabs the sword, swings, and of course, Trelane disappears. Well, Trelane, William Campbell actually injured himself during the scene when he fell on his shoulder and his shoulder popped out Ooh, of joint. Oh my God. So yeah, so that was one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why this episode went a day over schedule. Oh, so a doctor was called to the set to help pop 
its shoulder back into place. But it was actually Gene Kuhn's idea to have Kirk break the sword. Mm. Um, there's this one moment where Kirk gets a, a branch and he's sort of fighting with a branch and Trelane goes down and then the branch breaks and then Kirk throws away the branch and runs away. There's so many moments where, I, and again, it's not a criticism because it's 1966. I didn't know that one of the actors popped his shoulder out. They don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of budget. But Kirk is a way better fighter, should be a way better fighter than he shows here. He's got a guy down on the ground in front of him. He should beat the crap out of Trelane. Like, it, there should be no comparison in their fighting ability. And that really just, Kirk just gives up way too easy, way too often. But it is, it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. He gets back to the castle. Again, Trelane shows up. Kirk turns to his right. Cage. To his left. Cage. Cage. Remember, Trelane, you promised to let my ship go. Yes, but this is such sport. I must fetch all the others back to play. And then, much like Gary Mitchell, he tells Kirk to go down on his knees. Oh, but this time Kirk says, no. No. Does it still taste as sweet? And Trelane, like the spoiled brat he is, he says, I order you. You've been beaten. I order you. You've been beaten, but I'm not defeated. I order you. I order you. And again, this is where I went, man, what if we think of Trelane as America? I've won the war in Vietnam. I've won the war in Afghanistan. I've won the war in Iraq. Why aren't you beaten? Interesting. That's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. And Kirk, and this is, as you say, Gene Kuhn's idea, grabs it, breaks the sword. And this is where, it's not that we didn't think Trelane was acting childlike before, but this is where he truly begins to act like a child. Absolutely. You broke my sword! You've got a lot to learn about winning, Trelane. You dare to defy me! In fact, you've got a lot to learn about everything, haven't you? And he slaps him twice in the face. And now Trelane just starts to lose it. I'll fix you for that! You cheated! You haven't played the game right! I'll show you! And then you hear... Trelane! And then this surprise. I, I don't care how many times I see this episode... Every time we get to this moment, the big surprise that Trelane is an all-powerful being from a race of all-powerful beings that are far more powerful and advanced than our friends in the Federation. And when we see Trelane's parents, these big green glowing lights in the sky, and Kirk is looking up at them and he finally gets it. He realizes what's going on. There's a level of both fascination and amusement. So Trelane's mother is voiced by Barbara Babcock, who we will see as an actress in two Star Trek episodes. She was in A Taste of Armageddon, and she was also in Plato's Stepchildren. And she is also an Emmy winner for playing Grace Gardner on TV's Hill Street Blues. Oh, wow. But here's what I didn't know that you also hear Barbara Babcock in other Star Trek episodes. Oh. Did you know that she was the voice of Laskin, the Tholian, in the Tholian web? No, I did, did you not. know that she was the voice of uh, in the Lights of Zatar? I did not. And she was also, you could also hear her voice, uh, I believe it was at the computer in Assignment Earth. Oh. So she actually had some mighty yeah. big contributions to Star Trek, more than uh, the guy who plays the cell, <laughs> Michael Barrier. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And of course, I think you gave me a hint at who the 
the male parent voice is. Okay, the male parent's voice. So there was a lot of speculation over the years that the that Trelane's father was voiced by Barton LaRue. This has gone far enough. In fact, it is James Doohan. James Doohan, who is uh, an amazing actor uh, uh, that definitely uh, does not get enough credit for the, the variety of his performances through the years, but he is also a great voiceover artist, and he he is officially, he is the voice of Trillian's father. Doesn't sound like him, but it actually is. So I'll tell you the things that I really like about this and the thing I don't like about this. So the thing I really like about this is it's not just that we've met another civilization that's way more powerful than us. It's worse than that. It's that we've met a civilization where a little kid is way more powerful than us. A little kid is dragging a planet around. I think that's really cool. It's really humiliating. It's really scary. I'm going to say what I don't like that I bet you love. I don't like William Campbell's acting in this sequence. I And it's not him. I'm sure it's how he was directed. Is that He plays it like a whiny little American kid of the 50s. That's how it feels to me. But I don't want to come in and I won't. I'm a general and I won't listen to you. Enough, Trillane. Come along. But why? I didn't do anything wrong. I was just playing. Well, he plays a whiny little kid, which is exactly what, in fact, Trillane really is. And just like the rest of his performance, I thought William Campbell's touch right here was right on point and right in line with how over the top he was and how extreme he was on the other side for up to this point. Yeah, I don't love it. I totally get why you do. He does a great job doing it. It's just, it comes off kind of silly to me. You know, this is where me, the director, would go like, well, I probably wouldn't do it that way. I would do it some, find some other way to do it. But he is a kid getting scolded by his, very much scolded by his parents. There's some, there's some very interesting uh, moments of it. One is, if you cannot take proper care of your pets, you cannot have them at all. The other interesting thing, right after they call them a pet, they say they are superior, they have spirit. So I feel like there's a bit of a contradiction there. Um, I also love this line. Stop that nonsense at once, or you'll not be permitted to make any more planets. I see. I I just think (laughs) that 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 just sort of wraps the episode in a bow, you know, ties it all together. Like, he's a little kid, but hey, go out and make a planet. I just, I love that. I love that, you know, what that signifies. I, I, you know, I just love that with that one throwaway line of dialogue just, just exemplifies the power of, of Trelane's race. And then just, you know, showing the theatricality of the show again, Trelane is standing in a spotlight. I mean, literally it's just, I can, I can picture the spotlight operator aiming the big light at him. And then the way that they have him fade out. And this is, it's very similar to Charlie X is that the the aperture of the spotlight, the iris, slowly closes in on him, and then he fades out. And you hear, instead of hearing, I want to stay, yep. stay, stay, you hear, I would have, I would have, I would have, I would, I would, I would, I would. I mean, tonally, it is a the opposite end of the extreme from Charlie X. But there is something about the parent coming back to get the child, taking him away, telling him to go to his room. And that's what we see at the end of Charlie X. And that is what we see at the end of The Squire of Gothos. It's so funny how the, the tonally, they're just totally different because Charlie X is a really upsetting character who we really feel for 
who wants to be accepted and wants to be liked and wants to be loved, doesn't know how to do it, and now is going off to the loveless world. Trelane is a horrible person. He he's the kid that, you know, used a magnifying glass to burn ants, ants and things like that. That's what Trelane is. And he's a jerk. And now he's the kid getting scolded by his parents, which we feel good about. We're back on the bridge. We're going to have our final little joke. For the record, Captain, how do we describe him? Pure mentality, force of intellect, embodied energy, super being. He must be classified, sir. God of war, Mr. Spock. Well, I hardly find that fitting. Then a small boy and a very naughty one at that. And then this next piece of the conversation, I just, I I don't think this works. (laughs) And what it is, is... On the other hand, he was probably doing things comparable to the same mischievous pranks you played when you were a boy. Mischievous pranks, Captain. And then Kirk's list of pranks is like, did Kirk grow up in the 1920s? I was going to say the 1950s, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> Dipping little girls' curls and inkwells, stealing apples from the neighbor's trees, tying cans on... You know what we really needed was like, you know, the Martian colonies and the, you know... Things. Oh, yeah, the fundamental declaration <laughs> of the Martian colonies. Maybe we needed colonies. Kirk to have a... Yeah. The statutes know, of Alpha 3. Maybe we needed Kirk to having... Using the transporter room to send frogs to the... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we needed a sci-fi oh, yeah. prank. Yeah, like 23rd century versions <laughs> yeah. of those pranks. Forgive me, Mr. Spock. I should have known better. I shall be delighted, Captain. And we've reached the end of The Squire of Gothos. And that ending is another version of the Gene Kuhn yeah. quality that he brought. The the ending it with the moment of humor we just had. We had the whole crew laughing together at the end of Shore Leave. And now we're having another humorous, humorous moment on the bridge in the next episode that was produced, which was The Squire of Gothos. So you have the one-two punch in production order now, not in mm-hmm. air date order. But in production order, you had the one-two punch of Shore Leave and The Squire of Gothos. Two episodes back-to-back that were produced and are so fundamentally different from everything else that preceded it. We are now in the Gene Kuhn phase of Star Trek. Gene Kuhn took an already great show and he made it better. It was now Gene Kuhn's show. Star Trek was Gene Kuhn's show and it was an even better one than it started out to be. I don't know if I agree. That's something we're going to have. I gonna, We're going to have to address this for a long time because- there are so many episodes in the first 10 episodes that are really great. I, I couldn't agree you know? more. And, and so like, I can't say anything. I mean, I see things that are wrong with Mud's women or the man trap, but I can't as that is a era of star Trek with Corbomite and enemy within and naked time balance of terror, all those like that's great stuff. And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, so we're going to have a lot of these humorous moments at the end of the show on the bridge. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that as a way to always end the show? Uh, I thought it became a trope. That's what I think too. Yeah, I thought it became a trope. It became it became uh, something that was like became contrived. You yeah. know, like okay, we got to end it this way. But but here's the thing. I of course I I 100% agree with you about the first half of the first season. It is I think it's just magnificent. Yeah, it's just different. The the Gene Roddenberry produced episodes of Star Trek are just as good as the ones that Gene Kuhn produced. But the the Gene Kuhn period from the, the, the second half of the first season 
to the first half of the second season. That was his period as the yeah. day-to-day producer. Like you had the further definition of the characters, especially Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You had the 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 dynamic relationship between them, the, the way that they completed each other's sentences, that they were more of a team. That for, was very much Gene Kuhn. You know, you had the humor, the levity. You had uh, episodes that were very, very much episodes that had something to say. Yeah. You had some of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever made, like Devil in the Dark, Sitting on sure. the Edge of Forever, Doomsday Machine, Mirror Mirror, episodes, come on, yeah. all mock time, all this stuff. But that period uh, uh, is is actually where the the period I prefer. I feel like from the second half of the first season to the first half of the second season, Star Trek had hit its stride, and it was never better. Here, here's just on the, the 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 sort of final joke thing is I think any time that you say we always have to do this. I think you're going to be in trouble. I agree. Particularly in a show like Star Trek, where tonally it's so different episode to episode. And so when you're in a fun episode, having a fun little joke at the end works really well. The joke at the end of Galileo 7, although it's a funny joke, I don't think it fits the episode. I agree. With and you. then and then you're I, I could just picture you're in the writer's room and you're sitting there going, OK, what, what are we going to joke about this time? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And you're trying to come up instead of going. And the episode it, as it is appropriate then. And my f- among my favorite Star Trek endings is the end of Balance of Terror. Oh, a- absolutely. No, that's that's uh, as good as it gets. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, it doesn't have to be yeah. a funny moment to be a great moment. Yeah. I mean, I even think that the end of... Uh, of Charlie X is is a, oh, is a great moment. It's, great. it's just it's just you know it's just sad, yeah, very sad. very sad. So so when all is said and done, what did uh, William Campbell think of his time doing the Squire of Gothos? And he said, and I quote, "It was such a great role. It was sensational. I'll never forget it. And in my lifetime, I met maybe five people I found impossible to dislike. And strangely enough, two of those people were on Star Trek." DeForest Kelly and the guy who backed him up, Gene Kuhn. Hmm. And also some parting words from John Delancey. Oh. John Delancey, who played Q. The character of Trelane is so, it has a lot of characteristics that are generally like Q. That's when it occurred to me that Gene Roddenberry had probably called upon that character, either consciously or unconsciously. It's kind of carrying that baton through time. My contribution is to carry that idea that began quite possibly with Trelane and how here he is, John Delancey, he's about to reprise his role as Q in season two of the Picard series on Paramount Plus. So he is carrying that baton that Trelane started, that Mm. William Campbell started in 1966 and is now carrying it into well into the, the 20s of the 21st century. Wow. That's amazing. Well, there, there's so much, again, like, like we talked about throughout, I mean, you know, the, the perspective you bring to, uh, to looking at the Trelane being like sort of the American, quote unquote, uh, and also just the, the way that Trelane has, uh, is gleefully uh, embracing the barbarism of, of, of humanity while also shoving it in their faces. But I also love that this episode also does 
point out something that we've seen, of course, in Charlie X, but also where no man has gone before, is that absolute power corrupts absolutely, especially when it's in the hands of those who lack the wisdom and the maturity to handle it. Agreed. This episode is so much deeper and resonates so much deeper. It has so much more to say than it does on the surface because it is such a playful, lighter, more fun episode. But that is one of the qualities of of Star Trek that makes it truly great is when it says so much without being so overt about it. You know, it's not like let that be your last battlefield, which is very on the nose and beats you over the head. It's there. You just got to kind of dig for it a little bit, which, of course, we do quite well here on Enterprise Incidents. (laughs) We don't dig a little bit. it's funny. As I said, this isn't really one of my favorite episodes, although there are, as we discussed, many great things in it. And I do think one of the interesting things happening with this show is because we're taking every episode really seriously, even when they're fun episodes, there's interesting things to discover. And I think the big one for me personally was going, oh, I think this is where my dislike of bad guys as a creator came from. And I also think it just really fits into one of my biggest values, which is how much I dislike a sense of entitlement and how important I, I think it is to not look at the people around you and go, that guy's acting like Trelane, but look at yourself and go, am I walking around with that sense of entitlement? Am I thinking that I'm somehow better than other people? Or am I not understanding people who might be less fortunate than me or come from a different place than me that actually they are not pets, that they are superior people that they have spirit and are worthy of my respect. Like those are the things that I think as my dislike of Trelane actually helped to teach me to hopefully not be like him. And you know what, Steve, one other thing about the Squire Gothos, it just occurred to me while we've had this amazing conversation, yet another conversation that just takes the episode to another level for me, an episode that, like I said, I already loved. But during the course of this conversation, it finally hit me why I love the Squire of Gothos so much. Okay, I'm ready. Because just like Shore Leave, the prior episode was an atypical episode of Star Trek. The Squire of Gothos is also an atypical episode of Star Trek. And here's why. Because you have the crew of the Enterprise that are acting in character in one way. And then you have Trelane, who's acting in a completely different way. So William Campbell is acting, like I think, in one episode. But Shatner and Nimoy DeForest Kelly, they're acting in another episode. Like, it's not like The Trouble with Tribbles, or I Mud, where everyone's in on the joke, and it's a humorous episode, and the performances all across the board are done with levity and humor. But the way Kirk is with Trelane, Kirk is being very much Captain Kirk, and Trelane is very much being Trelane. They're, they're, They're almost acting in different things, but the fusion, the fusion works, and it gives the Squire of Gothos, a vibe that no other Star Trek episode has. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is an episode. Sure, I no question I love it now, but like I said at the top of the show, I loved it even back then as a kid. It's, it's that 
and it's just really, this is an epiphany that has occurred to me while we have talked about this on Enterprise Incidents. I think it's, I think it's a great point. And I think it is, I think Trelane is the dividing line. You know, it's like, I don't particularly like Trelane and that <laughs> makes me not like this episode as much. And But I 100% agree. He is playing an entirely different tone from the rest of the crew of the Enterprise. Absolutely. Like, like, like when he shows up on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, and they're speeding Away, they think they got away from Gothos, and and you know it's in the rearview mirror, so to speak. And then there he is standing on the bridge of the Enterprise in all his splendor and <laughs> all the splendor. He's standing there, just like so proud of himself. And you know, and you see the red alert signal going off, and it says condition alert in red right behind him. And there's Trelane in his like you know Victorian outfit, and he's on the bridge of the Enterprise, and Kirk is like. Get off my ship. You know, it's just so fun. But again, the 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 approach that each of them take are so different, but it's just a perfect it just works perfectly. I think it's so interesting because in Trelane and Charlie, you have two characters ostensibly very similar. And yet one of those episodes is really heavy and really scary, and the other episode is really light. Yeah. This just goes to show, I think something people don't understand so much about how stories work is that it isn't the plot, it's the tone. It's the characters that make the story work in the way that it works. Because plot-wise, they sound kind of the same. You know, on that note, that is an excellent point. But here's the other question I have for you about Squire and Charlie X. So like we've talked about, Squire Gothos very much has the stamp of Gene Kuhn as a producer, a lot more humor, a lot more levity. How would Charlie X have been different if the day-to-day producer on that was not Gene Roddenberry, but Gene Kuhn? Do you think that Charlie X would have had a lighter ending like Squire Gothos did? I think it would, and I think that would have been unfortunate. So it's better that Gene Roddenberry produced that one. And I, I am, I think, I'm a more serious like in my writing, I always would go, I like comedy within a serious story. I don't write pure comedy. And so I'm drawn, even though Charlie X is a difficult episode for me, I think it is really, really well done in its painfulness. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what's making it work. Yeah, and absolutely. I think, I think Gene Kuhn would have turned that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. You know? Yeah. Well, this is another episode where we went really, really, really deep. Yeah. Uh, and yes, I mean, that's what we're all about. That's what personally, and I know you feel this way too, Steve, doing such a deep dive into these episodes. I just think it is so rewarding to reframe Star Trek and to look at it with very different eyes, with a fresh set of eyes and a different perspective by looking at at episodes as a, as a, as a chronology, not just standalone episodes. And that is uh, why we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you think. Go to our Facebook page, comment on our posts. Let us know what you thought of our deep dive on the Squire of Gothos. That's just Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. And where else can people check us out on social media. Well, the first one would be Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram, and please subscribe to the show. So one place to subscribe is YouTube, and we loved seeing your comments and interacting with you there. It is just audio only. It's not actually a video, but it is on YouTube. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Please leave your reviews there. We've gotten some wonderful reviews, and we love reading them, and that really, really helps the show. We're also available on Spotify through Anchor, who's our hosting service. Scott, if people wanted to reach you, 
you? How would they do it? Well, that's real easy. You can just, uh, well, you could post on the Enterprise Incidents Facebook yeah. page because I love reading those comments and I definitely engage and respond to everything. And you can also follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Movie Mance. You could also check out my YouTube page where I create and produce and host all kinds of film-related content. And that's just Scott Mance. And I'm at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I've always talked about my other podcast, The Cinephiles, but I just threw The Cinephiles on our YouTube page, just posted my own film, The Assistance, which is a Hollywood caper film that stars Joe Montaigne, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach. It is now for free on YouTube. And also, if you're interested in the Great White Shark documentaries I mentioned, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear is free on Amazon Prime if you have access to that. Scott. Where's the crew of the Enterprise going next week? Oh, next time on Enterprise Incidents, uh, we are going to get a quintessential and very, very classic episode of Star Trek that has a villain, well, an alien, not necessarily a villain here, you know, as we'll get into that, but this is an alien we've only seen once, but it is one of the most famous of all of the Star Trek aliens. That is the Gorn, because next time on Enterprise Incidents, we are doing our deep dive on Arena. Arena is next on Enterprise Incidents. Please share Enterprise Incidents with all of your fellow Trekkers and sci-fi fans or people who are just starting to get into the original series. And until next time on Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. Boldly.